Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. There. Says we are now live. All right, people. We are live with episode 36. Uh, eventually with Mr. Hand, George Hand, we had a uh, test call with him uh, about an hour ago and he should be joining us shortly. Um, but in the meantime, we figured we'd just get started and George will pop in probably in the next five minutes. Um, George, our guest tonight, uh, he uh, served in first special forces group and then he was a Delta Force operator um, and has done a lot of interesting stuff since then. Um, particularly working uh, uh, counter human trafficking. So thanks for joining us tonight and we should get George up here shortly. Um, of course, this is the team house. I'm Jack Murphy. This is my co-host here, Dave Park. Uh, I am uh, streaming from the bug out location and Dave is still down in the city. Uh, I, and I, I noticed, Dave, that uh, the reason why our videos, the last two videos got demonetized I think it's because we mentioned the Ronies and YouTube is just demonetizing anything that mentions the Rona. Really? I believe that's what's going on there. Well, they also said that, um, they also said that uh, like there's gonna be AI censoring uh, because you know most people are working from home. So a lot of it is gonna be AI. And they said that the AI would probably be over censoring. But if I remember my, um, <clears throat> if I remember right, uh, in the original canon, I'm pretty sure this is how Skynet started. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh, man. So how are, uh, you know, I don't really want to focus on the Rona so much. Uh, I think there's enough of that out there. But uh, how are you doing down there in the city? It's quiet, you know. It's uh, it, it's it's as quiet as one would, it, it, quiet as a uh, church mouse, as it were, or uh, whatever. Um, yeah, it's quiet. Um, <clears throat> you know, I I don't know if they are in. I mean, a lot of places are closed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're enforcing any type. Like, I have not been stopped when I've gone out for groceries. I haven't been stopped when I went to work. Um, subways are pretty much dead, but they're also running much slower now. Uh, they're running on a restricted schedule. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. A lot of people cooking that don't normally cook, you know, a lot of people, but I mean, there's plenty of toilet paper, plenty of toilet paper. So, so it's not, it's not quite the end of the world. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, yeah. you know, I, 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 if, if. A lack of Charmin is the precursor to the apocalypse. We are not there yet. Okay. 
Well, my, uh, my, my mother, she works in a hospital and uh, it's definitely stressing people out. You know, it's here, here in New York. Sure. Um, and here's George, uh, just so you know. Okay. Uh, Mr. Hand uh, is connecting to his audio. Um, so we will have George up in two seconds. George. Yeah, test. Yeah, we got you. Oh. You're live streaming, brother. Okay. Did um, the video come through this time? Yeah, yeah. It all looks great. Um, right, so, so, George, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, Thanks, whoever's joining us here today, really appreciate having you on. Uh, every time I have ever jumped onto a phone call with George, it's uh, he's got something fascinating to lay on me. So, uh, Pressure's on, man. I know we're, we're, there's, there's going to be no shortage of anything to talk about. Um, and before we actually go deep, uh, deep into it and dive right into it, I do want to bring our viewers a quick word from our sponsors who are sponsoring this interview. Um, we are sponsored by Ned, which you can see right there. Ned is a wellness company and this is uh, their hemp oil product that they sent to me that I've been using. And you can, maybe you can see there, it's about halfway empty. I have been using this. Um, I don't know, do you have any experience with, uh, with hemp oil, George? No, uh, I, I, we did try it. We gave it a shot and um, I didn't get results and didn't, didn't like some side effect that I got from it. Oh, really? Did it, uh, did it like make you uh, like groggy? Yeah, it did that, didn't it? It definitely wasn't in uh, my typical state of mind when I took it. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So um, it's just a it's a thing that just isn't for me. That's all. It's not a big yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And it could be it could be what you were using because I have no idea. Um, yeah, this stuff in local to Albuquerque here might it might be a little stronger than what's uh, street legal, if you know what I mean. Um, this stuff that I'm that I'm showing here, uh, Ned's hemp oil, it's a uh, 0.3% THC. So it's definitely not going to get you high. It's not going to give you that kind of feeling um, at all. Um, I was also, <clears throat> excuse me, I was pretty skeptical of it when they first sent it to me, but I've been using it for hmm, about three weeks now. And I've actually had very good results with it. It's really helped me um, get to sleep and have a much deeper sleep. So when I wake up in the morning, I just have a lot more energy than I normally do. Because I'm that type of person, pro probably like you, George, like, very like overactive mind, like thinking, not that I'm necessarily smart, but I, I think a lot and uh, I have a hard time getting to sleep at night. I'm always that guy. Like I, I'm, I'm not asleep until two in the morning, most of the time. Uh, yeah, that's this, so good, man. Yeah. With this, especially you got to wake up in the morning, you got to go to work. That's a, that's a nasty cycle to be on. Um, but mm -hmm. since I've been using this, it's actually really helped me get into like a more, uh, you know, responsible and comfortable cycle of, you know, sleep. So uh, I've had very good results with it so far. And uh, Ned offers a discount for the listeners of our stream or viewers of this stream. If you guys want to go and check them out, you can find them at helloned.com. Uh, and if you go to helloned.com slash team house, you get 15% off and you get free shipping on your first order. So it's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash team house. So you can go check it out. It's, uh, it's there. And uh, otherwise, let's uh, get down to it. George, again, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jack and Dave. Great to have you, George. Great to have you. Appreciate it. So, George, I mean, I don't even know where to, uh, where to start with you because uh, we, we 
just end up circling around at so many different topics. But we had, um, I guess, pre-gamed a few things as far as, <clears throat> excuse me, what, what we wanted to talk about today. Um, I know I was, I'm, I'm very interested because we had talked to uh, some previous guests. We talked to HK Roy and others who were uh, with the CIA operating in the Balkans during the 1990s. And yeah. uh, you've been, you were over there on the JSOC side. So I was really interested in hearing your whole perspective about how that spun up and some of your deployments over there. Um, I think it'll dovetail really well and, and kind of tell a more complete picture of what was going on over there at the time. Well, I, I, um, I have about nine months total in country there. Um, three of it was, was unrelated. It was PSD stuff, you know, buttering mm -hmm. the, the, the country commander around. Um, but the other six months was were two deployments that were specifically um, Pithwick focused. We were, you know, they have their deck of cards list of mostly generals, uh, you know, that were indicted by the Hague, you know, specifically from Yugos former Yugoslavia to stand trial for war crimes. Uh, um, George, could you just elaborate for viewers who don't know what Pithwicks are? Yeah, Pithwick breaks down to his persons indicted for war crimes by the Hague. Um, and, you know, um, I mean, it, the, the trials and the tribunals that went on in the Hague were responsible for um, coming up with the, the essential list of, of persons, you know, by priority, uh, of which, you know, uh, I mean, Slobodan Milosevic was there, but the guy on the top was Radovan Karadzic, the big hair. And um, it took years and years to get that guy, but yeah, we finally did get him. I, I was not on the actual capture, um, but we went after some other, you know, fellows further down the list. And we, we, I was involved with three roundups of, uh, of generals or ex-generals, whatever you want to call them. Um, but we worked, you know, we worked in safe houses in town. We had uh, direct ties with, the agency who were also in their safe houses in towns and <clears throat> their the bread and butter from the agency um which was really essential in, in in getting these capture missions done is that they were running assets on the ground and that's a really difficult job i have about zero experience zero formal experience in recruiting assets but um and i was happy to leave it to those guys it's like wow well, one more thing i don't have to specialize in you know let let somebody else do it. But they would, you know, they had to work in and out, in and among the population. They had to figure out local people that that they thought they could trust, you know, whether they um, could buy their trust, <laughs> you know, with money or whatever that was. Uh, and I don't really know how they did it. I just, uh, I've always understood that they were um, uh, good, decent means. In other words, they weren't out there extorting people or blackmailing or trying to do that sort of thing. So they were coming up with assets, <clears throat> and then those assets were giving him some, uh, you know, essential elements of information of intel. And um, you know, once we all come to the come to an accord that there was enough actionable intelligence to actually go, you know, pick this person up, um, then they would uh, launch a force from JSOC, the Delta Force would launch a, a team of guys over, you know, in just a matter of hours. <clears throat> and they hit the ground, we'd formulate a, uh, a quick plan. Or we'd turn over the plan that we had put together being there on the ground 
just like, here's a basis for you guys to uh, come up with the plan that you want to execute. And um, it was a long, pretty painful process. I did a lot. We did a lot of reconnaissance. Um, every, every day was, um, <clears throat> was at least a five to six hour drive, you know, just to get, just to get to a city and just drive down one street and get one chance to look at one thing and then come back and vet it. So there was a lot of that. Um, and the missions were good. Um, we like I said, we collected about three that were wanted by the Hague um, <clears throat> and are actually in prison there as well. But that's, that's, that's about the one over the world, uh, how we operated, you know? So you guys were operating at a safe houses with the, uh, at least working in tandem with the agency guys, uh, actual operators who did the assault, um, they were holed up in a hangar, weren't they? Yeah. And I mean, they, it was a, you know what a clamshell is. You guys yeah, know yeah. what a clamshell the is. Yeah. Semi, semi, semi uh, rigid shell that opens up like a clam. TF-160 birds would be in those uh, shelters and would, we would uh, rouse a group from, from back at Bragg. They'd hit the ground and everybody would operate in and around that, uh, that hangar, that clamshell. But it wasn't, there was not a force there like on retainer. They weren't just, you know, there in case something happened. It was, it was we sent for them, you know, on a case by case basis. Oh, like, well, we got the intel, uh, go ahead and, you know, spring the force, spring, bring them over. And pretty, probably a pretty cool mission for those guys because there's no, you know, there's no hangar life, not really. There's not, right. much, you know, just laying around rotting for day after day waiting for something to happen. It was just like a sprint to get from Bragg, you know, in country to Bosnia. And um, <clears throat> probably, you know, I mean, working stuff up immediately with the potential to launch that very same day. Were there some pretty frustrating experiences, though, when, you know, if where you spun up the boys from Bragg and they all show up and then, you know, the intel doesn't pan out or your recon shows something different. It's like, eh, we got to call it all off. That it, I know that it happened. It didn't happen while I was there. In my experience, it was all... Uh, all three missions went off and they all three were successful and you know everybody rejoiced and it was a great good track a, record three for three yeah for sure but, yeah yeah you know and but at, at the same time I'm, I'm i'm thinking that had a little bit of bearing on on the the uh assault criteria it's like well we know that you know we have to we have to be so sure that this is um this is going to happen because we're we're going to spring this Delta force, you know, all the way overseas, right. bring them all the way over here. And if it's screwed up, then yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a big deal. So, and I, I just kind of was worried a little bit that, 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 you know, kind of raised the bar for what they were willing to accept, you know, to bring the, Oh, to bring Oh, the that, that the Intel had to be like a hundred percent solid before they. Would yeah. And it, yeah. And it almost, I mean, it, at times it almost seemed like it, you know, it was, it was not even realistic. Like we can't, you know, I mean, the things you're asking for, the way I'm going to, the only way I'm going to get them is like, I might as well just grab the guy by the collar. Right. You know, and go, hey, you know, never mind the assault. I got him because, you know. <laughs> Which is interesting because, you know, when you get into Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the, uh, the threshold for Intel 
for a hit, I mean, it was much, much lower. It's like, well, you know, maybe, maybe this phone number might have been connected to this guy at some point in time, and we'll go in and, you know, collect up every military age male and, and see if he's in there. Or, or even better, Dave, where you hit that house and it turns out they're not there, but the guy who lives there is like, well, I'm not a bad guy, but I know where a bad guy lives. Right, and the next right. thing you know, you're blowing down every door on the block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or walking like seven clicks to some village out in the middle of nowhere to, yeah. to roll up one of his one of his arch enemies. So, yeah, interesting. So was Thank it like a target-rich environment, Dave, then? Uh, target-rich and also... Uh, also, it was target rich, but it was also um, the threshold for intelligence just wasn't that high. And I think part of that is because there was so much circular reporting. Um, part of that was uh, because everybody was there and everybody wanted in on the action, you know, so yeah. so oh. it's like missions galore, you know, yeah, with, with with your element, George, I mean, they had the whole varsity team to focus on that mission. Right. And, you know, it, it sounds like you guys were really able to bring it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the threshold for you guys, because how many times can you bring a U.S. based unit over to Bosnia yeah. uh, over there and, yeah. and, and, and strike out before people start going, Hey, you know what? <laughs> this isn't working. <laughs> um, Jack, I will tell you one of those, uh, uh, one of the three was um, well when when the force got there, and this is this is uh, uh, Pat McNamara was there on this. You, you know Pat, he sure, knows sure. you. Um, but he they scrambled, you know B B squadron B squadron came all the way out and um, they went to snatch the guy. And when they showed up to you know the location where it was supposed to go down, you know there was a car there and there was a couple of lo local boys. You know that waved him over there was this dude and he had that they were after so he hogtied and was gagged and you know had blood running down his face but that frustrated them because you know they, they didn't get to cat they didn't get to do a capture mission like the guy was like already captured and just handed it over so they were calling him a a gift wick <laughs> joke <laughs> and yeah so they just you know picked up their parcel and threw them on a black hawk you know and uh rotored back to, to base and of course they since they were frustrated they went ahead and had a whole bunch of really great photo opportunities some great kodak moments you know with the gift wick propped up he's still blindfolded blood running down his head you know and all the boys taking turns I've seen the picture, but I, there's no way it's available anywhere possible. We, well, thank, thankfully, that was before Instagram. Uh, <laughs> and, it was. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple of questions that are kind of pertaining to this. Uh, first, first off, well, David, thank you for the donation. I'm going to get to your question in just a moment. Uh, so, um, Jim, thank you. And DJ, thank you. Uh, Peter uh, Pistol Pete, Peter Blaber, uh, in his book, talked about a snatch in Bosnia where it was considered using a dude in a Bigfoot suit. Anything on that story? 
Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Yeah, that, I was not there for that, but I'm, I'm aware of the story, and Pete and I are, are actually good friends. Um, and... Yeah, there there is truth to that. I mean, it was it was just it was just one of those things that it was uh, so bizarre that it it should work. You know, it's just so crazy. It has to work. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I, and I mean, that was after my time. Like I had already been out of Bosnia, and then Pete went in and the guys went. But um, it just made me think and wonders, like what the locals' um, superstition is towards. A thing like that, like a Bigfoot creature. And, you know, it would have been interesting to find out, uh, make some pretty interesting conversations while in country. But I imagine theirs is just about like anybody else's on the planet. It's like nobody wants the big hairy creature creeping outside in the snow, you know, so. So I, I gotta, I gotta wonder like, who pitched that con op to what officer? Like, so you see, sir, we're gonna have a guy dressed up like Bigfoot and? Uh, I, I would say, because I know that this was the case in some other missions, is that it happened so short string, they didn't really have time to brief it up to, to too many people. And in fact, the words of one of, uh, one of the better missions that happened there, Sergeant Major Rick Hall was uh, in charge of it. You know, and it was a big deal back at Bragg. And of course, when I got to Bosnia, I was like, you know, I was patting him on the back, like, man, that's fantastic. It's really wonderful, that mission you executed. And he goes, well, you know, I, Honestly, we just didn't really have the mission long enough to fuck it up. You know, <laughs> you, you know what? You, Jack, I know you guys know what I mean. It's like you get the plan and yeah. the plan's good today. Then you start messing with it, messing with it. Pretty soon you're, you got a plan that you've been working on for a week and it's like ridiculous, you know? Every, every good idea fairy in the world just comes in and gives their input. Oh, yeah, man. You got to be the smartest one in the room, you know? Yeah. What's no, interesting? I'm sorry, go ahead. You go in and embarrass it. So I promise you it'll work. What's interesting to me, though, is that this mission is on a short hook, but somehow getting a Bigfoot costume is not outside the logistical concerns, which, which makes me wonder if somebody is just tooling around the country or on deployments with a Bigfoot costume. You know, like it's not like they're ordering off Amazon. Yeah, I don't. Um, I just don't know, man. But you know, I read. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm ghostwriting a book for a guy. He's a Task Force 160 uh, AH AH6 driver. So he's an attack helo driver, and he was. Um, he supported Delta on the the siege of Haddad the Dam, and um, he also supported them heavily as he was like the uh, the airborne commander. You know, in a Spectre gunship or orbiting over 
objective gecko on D-Day of Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, where the, of course, the Rangers were at Rhino parachuting in, seizing that airfield. The Delta came in on a gecko, which was Mullah Muhammad Omar's compound. compound. This guy, he was key to that. And then the Hanatha Dam piece, and then some other things. A ghostwriting a book for him, and he threw a chapter at me today. You know, and I looked at this, I started skimming through the chapter, and it's, it's, he's mentioned uh, Pete in there. And, and I, I immediately got on the, on the computer, I had to say, Greg, is this, what, what is this true? But he's describing how Pete uh, went to, like in their talk, he went to adjust this big old metal fan, and they heard a wing ding ding noise, and they saw Pete's finger go flying across the room. And, yeah exactly that's exactly and some dude collected it for him and brought it gave him his finger back and uh he was saying how unbelievably embarrassed he was that this happened and because now they had to they had to like send him back overseas to get his finger reattached yeah and so he was going to miss out on some important things that's all that mattered to him not his finger flew across the room but that he was going to miss out on some of this this action. Uh, that's going to be a good read. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I get to he he regurgitates his stuff, and I just put it in. I I, sh- I get to shack it up, you know, <laughs> embellish it and all this other sort of things how I want. Um, oh, that's awesome. I just you, yeah, I guess you, I, I brought that up because it's a coincidence. You mentioned superstition, like using sort of local superstition. Is that something like? Is that something that you had seen before? Is that something that that, that people you knew or, or had been part of? Is that something that had been exploited in other places and other areas that you knew of? This is as close as I can get to that, Dave. <clears throat> is um, so me and my um, partner, this female, we drove. X number of hours, we took about three hours to a particular city named Vlasenica, was over the Zos, over the zone of separation. So it was effectively in the Republic of Ska, you know, um, bad guy territory. So we were there to, to, you know, collect a piece of information and to look for a person, just basically do our one drive through that, that city. And um, we did not know, because we're a little bit out of touch with um, environmental news, you know, because it had meant nothing to us, you know, there, all that mattered was like this mission. But, but there was a solar eclipse that day. And we didn't know that. And um, so we just were driving along and noticed it was starting to get weirdly dark. And I made a, a IMAR sat call back to, you know, our, our base. And they said, yeah, we're, you're right in the middle of this, you know, partial eclipse. And we're like, oh, oh, well, that's just interesting, but nothing more than that. And as we got to the, the outskirts of the city and started driving, you know, entering the city, there was not one single person to be seen anywhere. I saw a cat because it moved and caught, caught my attention. I'm like, a cat. But there was nobody looking out windows. They weren't standing in yards. Nothing. No cars. Nothing. And it's because of a really severe superstition that the Bosnians have regarding uh, solar eclipses. They think to be out in it, it's going to cause them some kind of just, you know, severe physical distress, which just ends their life. Fascinating. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, that's wild. And I mean, to not know, have a clue about any of that made for a really bizarre. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. And it's like New York during the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. Oh, you said it, George. Oh, you said it, Dave. God damn oh, it. I'm sorry. I, I just demonetized us, didn't I? You're, just, you're gonna get us banned. It's <laughs> okay. Uh well, George, that's a that's actually a good segue because I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about um your part of those deployments over there um to the Balkans hunting down Piffwicks. I mean, what were you doing? Um, you know, you mentioned driving around town with uh with a woman in the car. I mean uh, I, I, yeah, can you guys elaborate on some of this stuff for us? Yeah, I, I was, I mean, I had a, my other 50% of my team was a female, um, a unit female. Um, and uh, her, her whole job was to just not, was to um, knock down my profile. You know, that, that was mainly the job. So instead of just, you know, one uh, militant looking guy, driving around all the time in a car it's like well that guy's you know he he's nothing he's innocuous you know he's he's got his wife in the car with him you don't need to worry about him he's not a threat if he's got his girlfriend there and then on top of that of course she has all the potential in the world to collect intel as well you know to see things to notice things take notes even more so than me because i'm actually driving and in bosnia uh, females don't drive um, par particularly, you know, if, if there's a couple in a car, the female will not be seen driving a car. And, and I'm sure that after the, this many years, you know, there's the somewhat liberated females are probably slowly getting behind the wheel, you know, and uh, learning how to drive. But in those days, yeah, that, that just wasn't seen. So, and unfortunately that meant we couldn't trade off driving, you know, all day long. I just, just I had to stay behind the wheel, but um, yeah, she could do uh, communications shots um, and and plenty of other things, and um, that is how we did our recons. And uh, of course, we were easily able to get into uh, restaurants and other establishments and sit there for a couple of hours, hoping to see a certain person or or you know something of, of that nature. So that, that is really, that was, that's how I did my operations when the operations were going on and when the things were slow, since I had the language ability, um, they kept me busy as hell doing just administrative things like going out and finding new safe houses. Uh, that was a big thing for me. I just drive along until I saw a sign, you know, that says for rent and just knock on the door and just talk to, talk to the locals and figure out everything, you know, like how much, what the, or is the utility, is it connected to city sewer or is it on a septic tank, the power, the water, what works, what doesn't work and negotiate a price. So how did, uh, how did you come to speak Serbo Croat? Well, I, I, <clears throat> I checked out a um, two volumes language set from the unit three months prior to going and it had, came with cassette tapes, you know, old school cassette tapes. So for I had three month head start and I would listen to these tapes at night, you know, and I, for several hours. And uh, by the time I got there, I mean, I was, I had a good enough basis under me that I could continue to learn the language by interfacing with the people mm -hmm. without books mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, and yeah, I mean, after that many months, I got back to Bragg and I was real curious how I could do. So I went and set up a, a D-Lab test, uh, Defense Language Institute test and tested out of it for, with a good score, enough to get payment. That's amazing, uh, right? Sustainment pay, yeah. George, you're one of those few people I know that's able to do that. That's uh, just self-taught, uh, you know, able to learn languages like that. And after so little time, you were able to test out. Um, so like people who, who don't know what George is talking about, the, the D-Lab is just a test that they give to people in the military to see if they are fluent in the language or not. Like what proficiency are they able to speak this language? And that George was able to get paid for it meant that he was proficient. I mean, and... and were you a three three or a two two? What what does it have to be to get paid for it, George? The the, the languages are um, they're they're different based on their category of difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, like uh, for instance, I would have to test higher in French to get pay than I would for so for a Slavic language like Serbo Croatian or uh, the Asian language like uh, Mandarin and Cantonese Chinese. So uh, and I think I was at a two and a two with no plus signs for sober Croatian. And that's plenty to get. Uh, to yeah. Get some pay. yeah. Yeah. Two, two. And uh, but, uh, what else did I want to say? Yeah. Oh, it, it, even though I tested it out and uh, high enough for pay, I couldn't get the pay because I was already drawing maximum language pay for Cantonese Chinese. <laughs> I think wow. I'm the only guy in the army that was taking that test once a year, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, and, and you and you were self-taught when it comes to that too. I mean, you yeah. that started when you were a kid working in a Chinese restaurant, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's amazing, George. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so George, the, George, and, no, go ahead, Dave. Well, I was just gonna say the D Lab is the aptitude battery to get you into a into like language school, and then the DLPT is the that, proficiency yeah, test. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Just, exactly. Just for the people who will come on afterwards and 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 say. Um, George, yeah. working, working with, the, I'm sorry, uh, working with the woman in the unit, like that, that's kind of an interesting segue into like women in the unit. How were they selected? How were they trained? Were they trained differently than you guys? And what, do you feel like that's the precursor to women being in the soft community now or um, like how, what, and how was it received at the time? Um, well, I wish everyone had read Jack's article on, on that subject there. I'll put um, a link down in the description for people later. Yeah, yeah, because that would re really help. You know, that really helps back from the blue light days and how it carried over. And, and of course, you know, my relevance with the unit's not good at all, having been out uh, away from them for like 16 years. But, um, and so meaning that I don't know how they are doing business now or what it's like with them. Are they, have they take the women, have they taken up a, a bigger role, a more, you know, that's more or less more equal to like the guys that are salting or has that diminished into something much more administrative? I just don't know. Yeah. I don't either. At the time. Uh, I mean, while I was there, uh, Dave, you could have, you know, you could have uh, just separated the, the assaulters into two groups, man. And one group is the non-believers, right? Yeah. And the other group is the believers. And that's, that's it. And um, some just re absolutely refuse to work with them, you know? 
I mean, they could come knock, the women could come knocking at the door and say, I'm being assigned to your squadron for this, this mission coming up. And the senior guy would look at her, shake her head. I've seen this happen. He just says, hey, you know, I'm sorry. And shake his head. I'm, I'm not a believer. And she'd go, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Go back to go home. They're not going to be forced, you know. Back then, they weren't going to be forced to accept the, the assistance of the women if they didn't believe in the product so were these women in-house were they were they a part of the unit some other way or were they coming from someplace else it's it, it's it's everything okay even the salters is the same way i mean some of uh, um two two really good assaulters in my unit came from our signal squadron you know radio operators that, oh, really? that sort they were you know went through selection just like all the other candidates and uh had absolutely zero advantage. There's no such thing as an advantage in selection, you know, and they made it. And so, but yeah, the women came from all over. I, I actually got to participate in a portion of their, their selection. The, um, it was a, an urban exercise in one of the cities in America. And I got to go participate with that. And I was, uh, I'll tell you what, I think I, I know I've told Jack this before, but something that really shocked me, you know, left me like speechless for like, like five or 10 minutes was, um, I remember, I remember talking to the, a couple of the cadre females, one in particular that I was going to Bosnia with. And, um, we were interviewing some of the candidates, we were grading some of their stuff. And so she's interacting with them being the female. And uh, <clears throat> when I had a chance, I asked her, I said, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think you didn't want any of these girls to pass, you know, because then I compare that to being in West Virginia as a, a, as a cadre, you know, in, um, running the course there. And the guys are like constantly there for like everybody there. They're like, yeah, yeah. They latch on to certain candidates and say, hey, you see my boy today? You see his time? You know, just constantly rooting for all these dudes to make it because they want, they, we need help on the teams. We want the men coming in, passing fairly and making it to teams. But I asked her that, I said, it just seems like you don't want like anybody to pass. She says, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we don't want any of them. She said, we, like all of us women in the unit do not want the other women in because it's territorial. Huh. They don't want them there, you know, even if they're down, we're down to just like such a, a small fraction of what we need, you know, to maintain the mission. They don't care. They've just soon everyone flunked and that they were the last one standing person there. And that's a shitty way to think. It's but interesting because it uh, we had, um, uh, we had on um, Tracy Walder, uh, a couple weeks ago, and she said that the FBI selection was kind of the same way that the the women were very much like worse uh, than the guys were worse than the Being guys. Territorial, territorial yeah. is the word she used. <clears throat> yeah, uh, yeah, and, I, and you know, you had mentioned, you told me at the when we talked about it, George, you were like, you know, this is very destructive, a very destructive attitude to have because you're destroying, you're destroying your own unit. 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it, it's almost treasonous. And, and it made me wonder, too, um, is that when when the few did make it all the way through to where, you know, they're sitting in team rooms, it's like, how are they getting how are they getting treated now? Right. Here's a female that nobody wanted in. None of the other women wanted. But now she's in. And how are they going to what are they right. going to do with her? Well, and, and for the women who don't make it, when they go back out to the big army, if, you know, if anybody ever, any other females ever listen to them are like, no, don't go. It's horrible. It's horrible. Don't go. You know, like you will yeah. be like treated poorly. And, yeah. you know, um, like people might say that about like sear, like don't go because it's, it's like, you know, sitting on a, on a cold stool naked and hitting your nutsack with a hammer. Yeah, you know? But, but they, but they're not saying don't go because, you're going to be treated with some sort of, of prejudice or something like that. Yeah, man, you're absolutely right, Dave. There's, there's no such thing as that. Um, I, 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 I want to add a thing just because it's, it's, it's funny is that uh, one of the persons that I was assigned to for the entire day to follow around, you know, as she did uh, accomplished all these tasks. Well, I mean, ideally they, they didn't want the, the candidate to know, that they were being followed, but in certain circumstances, you had to compromise that. And it's for safety, for example, because they sent them through some pretty rough neighborhoods in Washington, DC and had them loiter, like sit outside and like do a sketch of a, of a church. You know, that's going to take a while. Sure. And, uh, and now, so here they are by themselves, this female in this neighborhood. And um, yeah, the command says, okay, you know, Choke, choke up a little bit, get close, get close. Or okay, go just go sit right next to her. <laughs> and, you know, to, to demonstrate to the people that are showing interest in her that she's not alone. Yeah. You know, so I just sit there. And, and then did the you? Deal. I know the deal. But so it, anyway, I'm, so I followed this person around. I got in an elevator with her. I had to. So, the, in the, in the, so she knew I was there. She recognized me and I still did my standoff. Uh, but it was just like, it was a joke by that time. Yeah. And the last thing I did was follow her to the airport so she could fly away, you know, and she saw me at the airport. Okay. And she flew away and she didn't make it. Okay. And um, years later, about two ish years later, I was traveling again by myself and it was the Charleston, the Charleston hub, Jack, Jack's already grinning, but um, I was moving to the airport and ahead of me was the same person, you know, she was just, it was just dumb luck. Now she's traveling somewhere and I'm traveling somewhere. We ran into each other at this airport, but the way she saw me was she turned around and, and, and saw me behind her. And that look <laughs> on her face was so, 
<laughs> so horrified. She thought this guy's been You're following, following her. two years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's, it occurred to me that too. Once I saw her face, I'm like, Oh my God, she thinks, Oh, and I, you know, I wanted to say something, but it just wasn't convenient. So I let her think that she probably thinks I'm still following her after 30 years. <laughs> she probably sees you everywhere. That's, yeah. She just like constant head whipping back. You, uh, you know, you had shared with me once before, because, you know, when you were a recce guy, um, you know, presumably you were at the recce troop when you were doing these operations in the Balkans, doing this route reconnaissance and target reconnaissance and all that. You had shared some other stories, funny stories with me about doing uh, live recce missions out in the wild and coming across unit members in the airport. And you guys <laughs> recognize each other, but you kind of have to be like, oh, I don't know who those guys are. Yeah, it, it, it is like that. It, and again, it's it's specifically, it's in the, um, the Charleston hub, you know, because uh, all the guys coming and going out of Fayetteville, that's like their first and their next right. to their last stop. Yeah, and we are con constantly running to each other around the world, mostly in airports, but we don't know what each other's doing. So it's, it's just kind of a silly game. You know, like we sit several rows apart and just kind of look at each other out of the corners of our eyes and, yeah and um walk by each other 30 of the time trying to gauge whether it's okay to call, say hey dave how you doing jack how you doing um because i yeah I, I did approach a guy once that um he was he he was traveling with a different name he was undercover and i came up right up to him hey <laughs> boy the guy's his face sunk yeah, 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 that that whole uh, I've I've experienced that too. Walking up to somebody and they give you the kind of the the, the slow <laughs> shake, and you're like, and so you're walking towards, and you just kind of turn and start walking the other direction because it's do, like, do, okay, do. yeah, yeah. Um, a, a thing that that um, one of the name the name that I used in the Balkans was a is a very good friend of mine still. Um, and we were both on a the Green Beret A team dive team together. And I, his full name, I use his name, you know what I mean? And um, I was in the Balkans and I ran into a guy in civilian clothes who was good friends with me when we were in the Green Berets together. And he was also good friends with the guy, <laughs> the guy as even better friends with this dude whose name I was using. And he comes up to me and he goes, George. And he looked at the name and it was, <laughs> And I, I think he thought he was going crazy for, <laughs> but if he looked down and saw John Smith, he would have went, ah, excuse me, ah, you know, but, but he saw a completely different person who he also knew. I think he thought he was going nuts. Um, we have a question from David Maynard. And, uh, thanks, David. Uh, and now uh, the three of us probably don't know exactly what he's talking about, but he's gonna, he says, let's start with his dislike of certain orange groups. But whether we, you know, whatever that's about, are, 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 are there certain SMUs that you don't particularly Oh, yeah. He for? wants to know why George doesn't like TFO. I don't even know if that's true or not, but. Um, I don't like anything that we ever did together, me and TFO. It, it was, um, it, it was unbelievable how poor their performance was. Um, I, I just, I, I don't even know what to say about them uh I th the the missions they compromised it was just incredible you know this incredible sloppy work i mean all the way down from 
something as petty as, you know, one of those guys borrowing one of my lock picks and destroying it, you know, by, I mean, he was, he had the thing jammed in the lock. He was twisting it so hard that he actually corkscrewed it and bent it. And anybody that has even uh, a little bit of lock picking experience yeah, knows that those are right. the light, light touch instruments. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really put any pressure on that. Yeah. You're not, not the rake ball. or not the, uh, but the, the tension bar. Basically, you just kind of cranked it. Yeah, you just put your finger down. No, yeah. no, he used he he used my pick. He didn't even use a tension bar, so he was trying to rake. You know. Yeah, rake across it. the pins, and he was using the pick to turn as well. That's how. So he didn't know how to pick locks. I don't even know why he. But he saw me do it. And he saw me throw open a lock, and he goes, "Hey, can I borrow those?" You know, like Donald Savvy, and I, you know, me thinking he knew how, what he was doing, and he didn't. So he yeah. just. So that um, compromised a, a video, a remote video surveillance camera that was watching a bridge entrance, you know, to pick up license plates of all the cars that turned down the bridge, right? So these two orange guys went and put that thing up. <clears throat> 24 hours later, they went back to, to recover it and it was gone. So they came back and they're telling my supervisor, blue supervisor, he says, well, okay, tell me, tell me everything about how you put that in. It turns out they put it in at about 1,600 hours in, you know, in daylight. <laughs> they put it up in broad daylight. He goes, well, we didn't see anybody. Wow. So, uh, again, you know, it's like, and I know Just they got not a the, Not the best crew that they had out with, uh, with you, I guess. It, no. Uh, oh, well, both of those stories are different, got different persons. And then they, they also pulled into a safe house. I mean, we have safe houses all over Bosnia is, and you just know where they're at. So, you know, wherever you're at in your mission, depending on how it went, you could, you could, you would know where a close one was where you could go stay there. Even if there's people already there, it's okay. But these guys pulled up in their car and they were, they were tired, man, you know, because they had a long day. So they were tired. And they were too tired to pull their radios and their weapons out of their car. So they went and, you know, took their naps. And while they were doing that, some locals stole their car, pushed it out to the street and jumped it. So these guys lost assault rifles and they lost radios, you know, with fills. With crypto, yeah. With yeah, with crypto fills. Yeah. And... I mean, you know, let's 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 throw the rest of it in there. Remember the 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 Chinese embassy in Belgrade? Yes, that guy hit by hit. bombs by accident. Well, guess who was lazy in that? Not you. Not me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I I would love to lazy it today, but yeah, back then it was a TFO guy that was lazy in that lazy in the wrong building. Uh, I, there's allegations that it was done intentionally. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Uh, well, my thoughts are I would I would love to do that intentionally today, still, but um, no, I got no I I have no educated remarks one way or the other about that, whether it was intentional or not. So, uh, thank you, Christopher. Uh, Ian uh, Ian asked uh, which units the females came from, but I think that we kind of addressed that. Um, that they were yeah they were the troop that the unit has for yeah that purpose. 
Um, and that's that's kind of where we're at. Hey, George, I mean, I know that you've done a lot of interviews and we've talked with Jack before, but for, for our guys or for our viewers, guys and girls, girl, maybe, I'm not sure. But for our viewers who may not be familiar with like your superhero origin story and your backstory, can you tell us like how you came up, how you got in the army, like, you know, where you went from there and, and how you got to, to be who you are now? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, I, I honestly felt like I wanted to go into the army, and, you know, and carry a rifle to be one of the guys since I was five years old. I'm positive. I can remember that. So I mean, that, that is what I did. I got, when I was old enough, I just went straight into the army and was, a you know, an infantry guy carrying a rifle. So I was okay with that. Yeah. Um, after, and this was between wars, you know, this is like a peacetime army. And um, it, it was awful, you know, two years, I was in for the shortest amount of po time possible, two years in case I didn't like it. And it was horrible, you know, it was just a bunch of thugs and hoodlums and uh, um, just a really poor crowd of people there. <clears throat> so I wanted to, um, I wanted to get away from that unit. And the best way to do it, you know, talking to the right people was so I wanted to get out, you know, go to the Green Berets, decided that's what I wanted to do. But the problem with that is that you had to be airborne. And I have, to this day, I have a tremendous fear of heights, man. Wicked fear of heights. It's almost unreasonable. You know, you'd be ashamed to, to see it. Um, but the way I describe it is after two years in that infantry unit, I was, I was ready to jump without a parachute. <laughs> and I just had to get out. So I did get out. I went to I went to airborne school. I went to the Green Berets, and <clears throat> it, it was it was okay. Um, wasn't all that, but I learned that the, this the cream of the crop on the teams was the dive guys. You know, you had your Halo guys. Nah, they were kind of lazy, but the dive guys were. Working. I feel attacked. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the dive guys were working hard all the time, man. It was. And so I, I, I did that. I got on a dive team. And, and even after all that, when it, when it came right down to, you know, going to war, I said, I, I did not want to go to war with that team I was on. I, I thought we were not, we were just not nearly as good as, as we were touting to be. I mean, even, even on an official level where our, our, our team uh, warrant officers telling the company commander that we could walk you know, 40 miles a day with um, 80 pound packs and that we could and we could and we could. And I said, when have we ever, Chief, when have we ever done any of the shit you're telling? And that really started to bug me a lot. And I think I got hypercritical, but I, I decided I, I needed to get the hell out of that, the Green Berets. And uh, my whole career in Green Berets, I, guys would tell me, you need to go Delta, what are you, why are you rucking? We're not rucking today. You need to go to Delta, Delta, Delta. And, and the clear matter of fact in my head was that I could not make it is why I didn't go simply because I can't, I couldn't make that. So it, it's just a matter of time. And um, I was in Key West. I was an instructor there at Key West in dive school, teaching diving and had a had a really dangerous relationship with the with the company commander there you know dangerous he was talking like jail and this and that and i said well 
okay, the, the only way out of here, because you know, we were, we were at war, there's no way to get out of a force multiplying unit, except Delta. Delta is the exception to everything. You know, all, none of the rules apply to Delta. I said, the only way I can get away from this guy and get out of here is selection. And, and ironically, that company commander was from Delta. He was a Delta captain. Um, he got the boot for really poor performance. Well, why do you want to throw you in the clink, George? We were, well, insubordination. <laughs> <laughs> because we were, the, um, the, the cadre was really, was not happy. They were upset, man. Uh, the guy was destructive. No one wanted to be there anymore. And <clears throat> that's all we did all day long is fucking, is, excuse me, just talk about, you know, the boss, this, the old man, that we should this and we should that. I said, let's do it, man. You know, let's, let's go to his office. Let's, let's, you know, at 1630, let's, let's meet at his office, let's go in there and let's tell him why we're unhappy. Come 1630, there's nobody there but me. <laughs> You know, and, and is, he's like, sorry, your hand, is there some reason you're standing outside my office? You know, so I go in there and go, wow, look here, boss. You know, and we'd have a, we'd have a conversation and uh, I called him a, I called him a dick, right? I said, you know something, sir, you're a dick. And he looked at me, he was really shocked. Like, what, what do you say to that? And he goes, well, you know something, Sergeant Ann, you're a dick too. <laughs> You know, I was like, oh, that, that, that's what you are. That's, that's your comeback. But anyway, um, and it went like that for about three days straight. You know, 1630, the guys are roaring and they were gone. So in the three days, you know, we shook hands. Um, and, but I, I knew that, you know, that this guy was had it out for me. He wasn't going to overlook it you know, those three days. Oh, you went to selection and uh, you, correct me if I'm wrong, if I, I misremember, you didn't make it the first time. No, I did make it the first time. You did? I did. I did totally didn't expect to. Uh, not too many people did, but I made it through the first time. Why do I have this, this story in my head? Were you training up for it and you got hurt? So you weren't able oh. to go? Yeah. yeah. What, what I did is I, okay, tra okay. I trained... Um, I mean, you know, there's a rec there's a sheet they publish. It's a recommended training regimen. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. you should be able to do these things. And <clears throat> and I tried to keep pace with it, and I could not do the, all those things that they recommend. I, I couldn't do them. Um, and I and I trashed myself, you know, trying to meet that their goal. Uh, and, and as I describe it, it's like the day I left for the airport. You know, I grabbed my bags. And I was limping to my car, you know, and I opened up the trunk and threw one bag in the next bag. And then I sat there and went, what just, what just happened here? You know, what did George just do? He just limped to his car. You cannot limp to selection. No. Yeah. That, that's not where you go to recover. That's where you, you go you to go tear to down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I threw my, I pulled bags right out of the bag, put it back in my house and called that sergeant major and said i'm not going to be able to make it you know and he goes do you want another date i'm like i don't really i don't have an answer for you right now so uh you know went back to businesses as usual you know the boss 
glaring at me. I'm like, holy crap. I, I have to say real quick though, when I made it and came back to Key West, he was a different guy. We were buddies, man. He has arm around me, smiling all the time. <laughs> Look at my boy. Look at my boy, you know. But so I, uh, what a two-faced idiot. So I'm back to just an instructor, you know. We have our next class in, and I was I was standing outside on a fire escape with one of the students, and he was he was looking at me, and he goes, "You're so you're you're Sergeant First." Start first class hand, huh? I said, yeah, I am. And he goes, did you have a date to uh, go to selection recently? I said, yeah. Yeah, I did, as a matter of fact. How do you know that? And he said, well, I just came from there. This last class, I didn't make it. But I had a bunk. And the top bunk was empty, but it had a name on it. It said Sergeant First Class George Edward Hand the Fourth. And I, I, when he told me that, I was just like kind of crushed. Yeah, yeah. Then, you know, it, it should have happened. Like my name was there. My name was on that freaking bunk and I was not there. So man, I, uh, like that same day, man, I was like strapping the bag back on and headed to climb the stairs 10 times. And but then you know, when you, when the you were, I could. When, when you were able to go to selection, like you mentioned, I mean, you went right through, everything was kosher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody had their days. Um, I, I had, I had a day that I didn't, that there was no way that I could have recovered physically well enough to, you know, to, to continue the next day. It was just too much pain. You know, it's just, it was a God awful pain. And, and um, <clears throat> somehow, man, I woke up that next morning and, um, felt like I could continue and I just I did continue and um now you know I remember at one checkpoint there was uh there was a medic there at a rendezvous point there was a medic there and you know they they tell you oh you can get some water and there's a medic there if you think you need medical treatment and I went ahead and went over to the medic because I wanted it I wanted it in the record that I saw a medic before I quit <laughs> you know that I that I kept trying you know I didn't just like oh I got pain and I quit no I wanted them to see that I first went to to try to get medical aid so that I could keep going so I went and saw the guy and uh, he gave me indicin he gave me some indicin because I still have two of the indicin you know they're like 20 years old and they're in this pill bottle as a souvenir I'm pretty sure the shelf life is shot but I, I still got him. Um, and I took the Indocin and I was able to continue. And I just, I just kept, I just kept on. That's amazing. Uh, so was Indocin at the time, is that like a, was that, was that like Motrin? It was vitamin M basically? It was something, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was an NSAID. I think it was in the NSAID class. Okay. Yeah. And I had zero faith in it, but uh, I don't know if it helped me or not. But I'm so, going to have to say it did. What what year was this, George? This was in 18, 18. Yeah, it was in eighty nine. Is what it was. And after like that, the I mean, the self doubt leading up to it. I mean, for for a while, right? Not thinking you can make it, and then the challenge and and putting off the class, and then in the course in the selection, like 
feeling like you you were going to quit, but but wanted you know wanted the justification. When you found out you were selected, what was that like for you? Well, I, uh, at, at the end of the long walk, yeah, I mean, I still, it was dark. I mean, it took me like eight, 18 and a half hours to, to walk that walk. And uh, I stumbled into the sergeant. I couldn't see him, but I, he, I could hear him because he got out in front of me and said, Sergeant Hand, you just, you know, passed whatever the, you know, the Virginia portion of selection and assessment. And, um, by gosh, Dave, I just don't know. I, otherwise, I would have answered by now. I don't really, I mean, I wasn't like jumping up and down saying, I'm the man, I'm the man, you know, I wasn't feeling superior. I was just feeling like, uh, <clears throat> like, um, like I had a good day. Yeah. You know, I accomplished everything I set out to do today and I did it well and there were no failures. And then, like, when you were in OTC, through OTC, when you got to, when you got to the unit and things like that, I mean, did you find that self-doubt creeping back up or did you feel as though, did you feel more settled like in your heart about, about you being there and about you belonging there? Yeah, uh, I felt, uh, I didn't really feel like this great surge of confidence, but um, like I had zero, I had zero fear at all that I would be too scared to do something. You know, it's like, well, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this shit. Right. It wasn't like that. It was like, and we even talked about it amongst ourselves. It's like, it's like, you know, they, they could ask us to do anything and we'd try it. You know, I know we'd try it. Might make it, but we'd give it a shot. I mean, sure. Dave, Dave's asking again for the viewers, Dave's asking about the operator training course that you guys do to, you know, become qualified operators in the unit. I, and is that like a, a, just a straight up boys summer camp? I mean, like just the most awesome thing ever where you're training to do like taking, taking down aircraft. And I just imagine all kinds of high speed stuff in the back of my mind. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it, it, and it's like five months of that. Um, it, and it's, it's all, it's the real McCoy. You know what I mean? It's not, nothing is, there's no half stepping through it. Like, well, we're going to simulate that, you know, we're going to simulate that, that, but this box is, is a really a, you know, it's not like that. Uh, like when it came time to do NBC, you know, some NBC training, um, you know, we didn't just like take out the chemical, take out the alcohol pads and like wipe for one minute, the back of our freaking hand, you know, <laughs> not doing NBC training that I'm discarding that one. No, they flew us to someplace in Alabama and we did, we did uh training with, live sarin gb nerve agent what yeah i'm not i shit you not man so you know we're putting on the full rate the full um mop the you know the full mop yeah mop level four yeah yeah mop four and uh we went out there and there's there's some dudes there with with droppers and we were briefed ahead of time you know it's like we're going to do live agent training you know we're going to be de we're going to be contaminated with uh, sarin gb they're going to put it on our persons and we're going to have to de decon ourselves and our, our buddies, and we're going to have to do it right. I'm like, yeah, you're, we're going to have to do it right. I mean, the consequences 
you're not going to feel very good and your eyes are going to water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Saren, uh, I, I'm not a chem expert or anything. Is it, does Saren asphyxiate you or is it one of those things that it touches your skin and you're fucked? It, it, you can't really even uh, uh, endure a pin-sized drop on your bare skin. I mean, it's going to start, it's going to start locking up every muscle in your body, you know, so it's going to contort you into a really weird shape. And it's also going to, yeah, your lung, you're not going to be able to breathe because the breathing is done by a muscle. So, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really horrible death. And yeah, so they contaminated us with that stuff and we decontaminated, you know, very thoroughly and re-decontaminated re and decontaminated each other. And there was a lot of, it was like we were swimming in the end. There was so much water everywhere. I, I was talking to somebody uh, just this week about uh, a former uh, unit member um, that you crossed paths with. And this person was telling me about this, this operator had to get into MOP4 to do some work overseas in the 1990s, um, WMD work. And uh, this, the other civilians, uh, the other people who were part of this program could not get into a MOP4 suit in the heat, in the summer heat, in the desert um, without, they passed out in like two seconds. And this one dude from your unit was such a bad, badass guy. He got in there every time and went through the work, did, did everything that he had to do. And when they pulled him out of the suit, it was just like buckets and buckets of sweat because nothing gets out, right? So once he takes it yeah, off, right. it's like buckets yeah. of sweat coming out. And uh, they were like trying to fucking put ice blankets and that kind of stuff on him. It's like, no, no, I got to finish the job and got back into it and went and, went and did it. And I was just like, God damn, it's nuts. Yeah, and you know, I think, um, well, I don't think, I know we, we attacked WMD in, it was in Virginia. I believe it was an underground facility that was owned by AT&T. That's what it was. So it was deep underground, man. It was everything, blast valves, um, uh, you, you know, the exhaust tunnels. And yeah. It was everything, huge vault doors. And we, I mean, we, we flew to that. We left Bragg already masked up, you know, so we had the entire transit of the helo. Oh, wow. We had the whole mission, you know, and then the transit back, and we had, went through a decon there in the pine woods, um, like at midnight or something. But the whole time, you know, total time of transit from beginning to end, I was masked up for eight and a half hours. <clears throat> oh my God. With never, and, and, never cracking that thing to cheat, you know, because. So for, for our viewers who have never been in MOP, which is what military, what is it? What's military protect oriented protective posture? Right, and it, it, it is a suit that um, basically, uh, like the old sweatsuits that people that people used to wear. If you imagine wrapping your body in a non-breathable, yeah, um, non yeah in, in a non-breathable, like complete from head to toe, heavy kind of galosh sort of boots, a mask with, you know, fitted with a gas mask, um, uh, it's just just your own body temperature is going to heat it up and yeah. cause sweat. Then any activity under that is going to, you know, just. And, and because these are operators, they've got all their gear with them, right? Right. So they got the, yeah. you got your guns, your ammo, you got your breaching kit, Canada whatever. Full combat load, whatever. Moving, 
moving quickly. Ugh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and George, this this training was to simulate cracking into an underground facility and securing a, a weapon of mass destruction. If if I'm following. Score. It was a warhead. Nuke warhead. And that's some pretty gnarly stuff. If I mean, well, obviously you've thought about it quite a bit, George. But I mean, for the I, average I, American I to think, think about that. We have these dudes, these operators who are standing by, you know, worst case scenario that like, like some of all fears type stuff um, who can go in and execute that type of operation if it became necessary. Yeah, it, it um, I think about it still. I just, uh, I mean, me and my, the mission that me and one of the guys who's is KIA now, Guy Catino, they were going to, we, we're gonna we cut a grating that's on the ground it was the exhaust exhaust uh vent you know for air in air out and um it's about 30 feet deep so they cut the grating open through we threw a fast rope down there and me and guy slid down this damn rope to the bottom so it went down 30 feet and then it elbowed and it went back in about 15 or 20 feet right and our mission was to see there were supposed to be two blast valves. Blast valves are like this big, you know, metal, thick, heavy metal. And there's there's a rod on them. And they're designed to, if there's a nuclear blast, the concussion of the blast will come in and it'll slam those valves shut so it doesn't get inside the facility. Um, and, you know, of course, they could be um, remotely opened and closed. And they were me and Guy were to go down there to see if those blast valves were open. That was our whole mission, the, the mission, the first piece of the mission. And the, if they were closed, the, then no go. We just pulled back out and we leave this, this whole shaft alone. There's nothing for us there. But if they're open, then, you know, we can get in there with an exothermic torch and we could cut that shaft that they're on and boom, 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 boom. We could, and we'd have a hole that we could like start diving through. So me and Guy got down there, slid down the rope, saw that the valves were open. That was a good thing. But about then the guys at up top started torching the rest of the grating to get rid of it. So they're burning these exothermic torches, brocos, and all this damn slag is just pouring down the shaft. Holy it's splattering. Shit. Oh my God. You know, it's splattering uh, right at the elbow where me and Guy are at. And we started creeping back till we had our backs up against the concrete, just watching this, you know, this fire avalanche. And we started, he yelled at me, he goes, I don't think I can breathe. And I'm like, yeah, man, we're losing some air. We got to get out of here because the, all that slag and the torture was burning the freaking air up, you know? Yeah. Um, so we're calling to these guys like, stop, cease fire, cease fire. You know, give us a chance to climb the hell out of here. Well, so we how did- climbed out these... Other dudes went back, the, the breachers went back in and started working on those valves. They come very quickly. Really How quickly. did you climb out in mops and mop? Yeah, tour? that's what I was gonna ask. We should have we should have known this uh beforehand, <laughs> but none of us thought about it. But as soon as we're sliding down that fast rope, like my elbow was banging into the thing, bunk, bunk, and it's rungs into the concrete. Every shaft is gonna have rungs, you know. <laughs> Have <laughs> there's this nice ladder rungs you know like every yeah. three feet so yeah so we just climbed our way out of there like normal human beings 
but I, I mean, presumably, you know, thankfully this was a training exercise, but in real life, you couldn't assume there's a ladder there unless you had somebody with eyes on, right? Right. Unless there's eyes on, man, we got to bring everything, everything that we are positive that they should have. <laughs> uh, we have to bring it. So, yeah, that was a great mission. I mean, we had two troop breachers on either side of this thing trying to get in the main vault doors, you know. Because uh, once we threw those things open, we could like bring in Pensgowers and uh, the all and of the big stuff. Pensgowers are are wheel uh, are six wheeled vehicle. They're vehicles. So when he's talking about uh, a Pensgower, they're talking about actually bringing vehicles into into the bunker into the yeah. I should know better, but you know I'm looking at Jack the whole time, and I'm no, and I and he's already knows all this stuff, so I keep you're, forgetting. You're right on. Uh, that's why yeah. we're here. Um, so how long were you in Delta, George? I was there for 10 years. Okay, so we, uh, uh, thank you again, David. And we have a question that kind of, uh, for the, from the time you went from the conventional army to SF and then the 10 years that you were in Delta, uh, David Maynard, uh, Maynard uh, says, I've seen Larry Vickers pick of early Colts with flashlights duct taped. What was the gear evolution like? And was there a point it felt like a sci-fi movie for you? The, the, um, we, <clears throat> we, had, we had decent lights um, on our Colts. They were manufactured, um, uh, I want to say Surefire. I want to say the sure, it, it was good intentional gear that we had for... Um, our long guns and our secondaries, our pistols rather. It was a decent light. It looked like it was made, you know, at a decent place, not a garage that fits correctly and has a sensible switch. You know, in my case is a pressure pressure switch on the on the pistol grip. You know, if I wanted light, I just squeezed a little harder and I had light. And on the 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 M4s, well they were car 15s at the time, but same thing. Most of the guys put a forward pistol grip. And that's where my gun light was, was on the forward pistol grip. And it also had a pressure switch on it. And I also tilted my forward pistol grip about just a little bit because that is just not as natural as that. Right. So it, it was a really comfortable ergodynamic thing to pick up and shoot that I really appreciated. And, you know, being in recce, maybe we can talk a little bit about that for the people who don't know, but being in recce, like, were there things in, were, that you were exposed to, technology that you had, things like that, that surprised you and, you know, was like, oh, my God, this is amazing or so cool, or as you were there, it, it evolved, things like that? I have to clarify, correct something. I was not officially in a recce troop. Okay. I did, I did the hell out of the recce mission, but I was never assigned to that, that troop. Okay. I actually avoided it. I avoided it just a little bit. Didn't want, didn't want. Why to was there. that out of curiosity? Uh, you, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, and it has nothing to do with the mission or the equipment or anything, but it, it actually had to do with the, the, the guys there. Um, I mean, Reiki only took senior persons, right? And that's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Well, senior persons are also older persons. And I started noticing that in the recce troop, there was guys there that were not, that were not physically uh, up to standard 
and who knew it and who didn't give a shit. And I also noticed that even when I got there as a <clears throat> brand new guy, I noticed that there was at least one or two dudes in this recce troop that never said a goddamn thing to me, never said good morning or, Hey, how's it going? And it, it just I'm noticing, noticing things. Like I, I noticed when we did loadouts, I mean, those are a bear you're lifting like a million pounds of gear, you know, like 40 pounds at a time and 50 pounds. Um, and I noticed that some of those, some of those recce guys would open up their team room doors and they would drag their gear over to the pile. Then they'd go back in their team room and shut the door, you know? And, and I noticed that from up on the cargo truck where I always position myself mm-hmm. so I could lift every single person's bag in the whole squadron. So, I mean, it was just, it was an attitude. It was a, it was a demeanor. It was an affect that came from those guys that I just wasn't quite uh, ready for. And by the time I was done in squadron, I, I was never ready for it. <laughs> so, so I went to Advon for my last two years. And, and what exactly is Advon for the people who don't know? Um, Advon is a, uh, it, it's a unit that we, we deploy all over the world to spots where it is expected that the unit is going to have to deploy to. And the intent is to get there ahead of time or in advance. And that's what Advon stands for. Get there in advance and do battle space preparation, you know, prep the, prep the area, um, with, in terms of intelligence, with logistics, that's a big one, and operationally, get as much accomplished for the squadrons so that when they hit the ground, you know, they're not living in pup tents, uh, trying to figure out where they're gonna get water and, and that sort of thing, because they only deploy with like enough stuff to last 72 hours. So beyond that, that's my responsibility as Advon. And uh, of course, Advon turned into um, this, this wicked uh, recon and hunt for these pifwicks. So when you were hunting for the pifwicks, you were actually acting as Advon and not as Recky. Uh, oh yeah, I was there as Advon, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and hey, I'll, I'll tell you, Dave, man, we had we had a warehouse, brother, of that was filled with cars from the local economy. It's full of Volkswagen Jettas, some BMWs, Audis, but they're not cool ones like we get in the States, you know? Yeah. But they're different. They're, Peters. They never leave. The, they make a different kind of Volkswagen Geo and Volkswagen Jetta than the ones that show up in the United States. I mean, those are actually nice cars, man. But over there, they're, they're like soup cans. Which is <laughs> but we had like 30, 35 more of every kind of car, uh, vans, even trucks. I mean, when I was there, me and one other guy, we purchased an actual um, tractor trailer, their version of a tractor trailer, semi, you know, big fuck cab. Um, <clears throat> and us two that, that bought it, we had CDLs back in the States. So the unit sent us to a CDL, uh, you know, tractor trailer driving school is what it was for 30 days in Charleston um, with the express intent that we could drive tractor trailer rigs with our interests inside the trucks where nobody <laughs> could see them. 
And, and I didn't like that idea at all. I thought, I want to be a long haul truck, truck driver. <laughs> and I looked around, yeah, I only, the longest trip I had to make was to Vermont and back. And then a couple of shorter excursions in, in North Carolina. The Trojan um, horse. But we bought this we bought this truck and the plan was, it was like, well, every, every, re, every uh, yeah, recon recce platform we have is this sedan. You know, it's always, we back the sedan up next to the apartment with cameras in it. So we wanted to break that profile up completely. So we went, you know, we went like hard left and got an entire tr truck because that's never been seen as part of a recce profile. Like, no one cares about all these millions of the huge transport cargo trucks parked around. They just don't care. Right. They're starting it, it, to, they start to get suspicious a little bit with the same looking, you know, Volkswagens. Or, or the exterminator van down the street, right? <laughs> well, and uh, I mean, allegedly that ended up going forward in, uh, in Afghanistan where the, the Trojan jingle truck got used on certain operations from what I understand. Yeah. Now we own a, a few uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, trucks, we call them apple carts. And they were at all kinds of bizarre configurations in them like false, false uh, backs, uh, for example. You throw open the doors and there's like, it's jammed from, from ceiling to floor with lumber, right? Where in reality, that lumber is only like a couple of feet long and it's a facade. So it's a false, it's a false cargo facade. And when you get behind that facade, it's the big open space with a bunch of pissed off dudes. <laughs> so when when you talk about, you know, the sedan with the cameras in the back or 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 this Mercedes, you know, sort of Trojan horse type thing, um, who was doing your tech work? Were you guys doing it? Uh, was the army doing it? Was the agency doing it? I mean, can you comment on that? Like yeah, we we were internal efficient with tech okay damn good tech yeah with a whole a whole section um and, and I, you know every one of those guys every one of those guys was was a green beret you know now they're working in the tech shop sure sure and and I, mean, yeah, I mean you could just talk to them and describe a, th a concept you know that you're dreaming of and explain it to them well enough and boy, they would turn something back around that was pretty impressive. Yeah, pretty I, impressive tech people are kind of unsung heroes in in in, in every field. Like that's these. really well said, Dave, because because they they really 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 are. And I would, I thought a bunch of times it's like, man, you know, if I got if I, if I had to like suck down a magazine of of eight K rounds and I couldn't really assault anymore, I'd like to work in that tech section with those yeah. guys. Because those are some really great guys, and I yeah. really like that mission. That mission, that creative, um, and, I, and I got to, I got to use a, a whole bunch of that when I was doing counter human traffic. Is you know I'm I'm thinking about what I need, and uh, I got good support budget, um, and I built a lot of the things that I used, you know, to uh, to collect intelligence. There was uh, reminds me of uh, a, a gentleman you and I both know, George. Uh, working out of Iraq back in the day. And I remember the unit guys would bring in a car, just a vehicle they had presumably bought off the street. And uh, I, I have no idea who this guy was, big fat guy flown in from the States somewhere. And he'd come in with all the armor 
and he would up armor these vehicles inside for the yeah. unit members so they could go out and do their operations and low visibility vehicles. But it was just really impressive to see, you know, them bring this guy in from the States and he could rig these things up and they, they looked like normal cars. Yeah. 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 It, it's amazing. Um, so Mason, thank you for the donation. Uh, Mickey, thank you for the donation. Mickey says, no question. Great show. And we have George to thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, and actually Mason gave us a bigger donation. So, so let's try this again. Holy Tech crap. is hard. I recognize those names. Um, Mason Flake. Yeah. And uh, oh, talk about techies. That guy. Yeah. We're, we're tech really? buddies. Yeah. He's, he's a network good. engineer genius, man. And we, uh, he'll send on a weekend, he'll send me like five to 10 pages of, uh, of just ramblings on a certain pro internet protocol, you know, like and you're, you're really good with that stuff too, George. Uh, well, yeah, I, I wanted to do that when I got out of the army, it just didn't, I went to the school for it, got, got the qualification. Um, I've always had a great interest in it. Haven't had the best aptitude in every case. Um, and, and, and yeah, that's just, a, that's, that's just something I have to admit that it's like, Oh, it doesn't matter how much I love that stuff. My aptitude is not the best for it. Yeah. That, that, is, that doesn't destroy me. I, I, I still, I got guys like Mason Flake, you know, it's like, well, he'll, he'll explain it to me his way, you know, like router information protocol, RIP. He, he's explaining that one to me now. And it makes a difference, you know, to hear that guy explain it to me than what, is, what I'm reading off the internet. And stuff. Sure. And some people just get it, you know, and, and, and that yeah. was, yeah. you know, that was my, my experience working with tech people is that, I might have like an idea, but I had no idea how to implement it. And you tell a person what your idea is and it's like magic what they do, you know, and what they're capable of. Uh, yeah, I've always been impressed. George, I wanted to also ask you about, um, you know, this was during the, the 1990s. So some, some operations got off the ground and, and some didn't. Some were in the planning stages, which presumably to this day, there's plenty of operations that never get off the ground for one reason or another. Um, but one of the things I want to mention that uh, I, I felt was really interesting when I've talked to people about it was the planning that went into Libya. Um, yeah. You know, at the time at uh, Tarhuna, Gaddafi had a underground chemical weapons uh, factory going. Yeah, you bet. And I, I, was, I was able to talk to one person who told me about the kind of, you know, the tactical ground plan they had put together for JSOC. But I know you were in the unit at that time, you know, part of, you know, the guys getting spun up for that. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about it from your perspective. Oh, uh, uh, let me see. I, you know, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I do, I do recall going into um, our upstairs classroom for a couple of days of planning on a target, you know, and it was, there was a, the instructions were just get up there, you know, and and um, get busy and get involved and, and get in this planning. And so, yeah, I mean, we had some. We, we started with just some uh, looks like some engineer drawings, not not red line drawings or as built has built rather. But um, yeah, it, it looked like a pretty complex target, and I I read the name, and that was the name of it, and it occurred to me sometime during the first day that I didn't know where the hell it was. Go, well, where is this, this Tarhuna, you know? And they go, well, it's, it's, you know, it's in Libya. I'm like, holy crap. And so, yeah, we planned on 
we did two days of planning on that, of what ifing and straw manning and spitballing and all that sort of thing. We had a damn good Intel man there. I mean, that, that was his area. He was there with us the entire time, you know. You could just spit a question at him at any moment. He'd throw back an answer. And <clears throat> we ended up with, you know, a package that got put on a shelf with a whole bunch of other packages, you know. Uh, hey was, was another one. Uh, we actually did our hate, we did our, did our planning for Haiti in Mogadishu, you know, because, uh, yeah, because things were so over, uh, you know, about halfway through our, our stay there that there, there was nothing to talk about in the morning about Muhammad ID, you know, and we had our pilot back, Mike Duran was rescued because uh, we went, it went from going after a deed to just like trying to get Mike Durant back. That was the focus in this mission, you know? And we'd, a couple times we'd think, oh yeah, indeed, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so we got Mike back and that was like really over, but Haiti was coming down. So we spent our last days in Mogadishu um, talking about nothing but Haiti. I mean, our Intel guy came at 0800, giving us our morning Intel brief and they had nothing in there about Mogadishu, it was all Haiti. So we did days of planning for, for Haiti and we were quite prepared and willing, you know, to fly right out of Mogadishu and right into freaking Haiti. It didn't matter. It's like, well, we don't need to go back to brag. Why, why do we want to do that? Do our laundry? No, let's <laughs> do some laundry, eat some normal food for a couple of days. Then no, let's, let's hit them now, hit them now. You know, what, what was the, what was the mission for Haiti? Was it um, uh, there? I, I'm trying to get the names uh, of the those in power. Papa Doc, a Aristride, Aristride, and Chevalier. Or regardless, that that civil unrest was going on. You know, between uh, guess what? The corrupt, horrid guy in power of the country at the time, and and the, the, the other people that are trying to overthrow them. So you got that civil unrest going, a possible civil war. Um, the very, the, the specific things that we were going after, um, my troop was a warehouse. Lo and behold, once again, it was a warehouse, but inside it were two combat fighting vehicles, armored combat fighting vehicles, the makeup of which was French. And our mission was we had to own those you know, we, we, there were, there were not a lot in there, you know, and, and they were in control by the, the, the unfriendly side, such as America chose at the time. So we wanted to get those away from the unfriendlies, own them, use them if needed. And if, um, if all else failed is to get rid of them, destroy them with thermite. So our, our plans were just selecting routes to try to get to this warehouse and, and uh, how to, <laughs> I mean, we used buildings at, at Mogadishu Airport that um, looked quite a bit like the warehouse on the ground. We used those for rehearsals. Um, we just, just did what we could. You know, did the most effective use of this downtime uh, to try to prepare for the next big thing coming up. I, and was that, an, was that an kind of an unusually active time for you guys? Or, was, or had you been pretty active uh, prior to the Mogadishu and then spinning up for Haiti and things like that. It was pretty par, Dave, par for the course. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
nobody was reeling in the saddle like oh my god we got too much going on you know yeah well and, and george you were in colombia before you popped over to mangadishu weren't you i was after i was in colombia after after, after okay yeah like like around the 90 mogadishu was 93 i was doing my stuff in colombia like the night uh gosh darn it the 94 95 and then i think bosnia was at 96 okay and on until so I got you you were hopping and popping the whole time then even though it was exactly. a, even though it was a peacetime military basically yeah man yeah. yeah so i mean i've got my greens my dress greens look strange because i have a i forget how many i could run to the closet but i'm not going to do that but i got a whole lot of the short straight stripes for time in you know hostile fire zone and it 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 looks weird compared to the, the amount of years i have in the service those those hash marks you know? sure and i asked people go how can you have that much time in a hostile fire zone you know how can you when you've only had this many years in the service like it's a math problem and it it solves correctly you know yeah like it's well so, just to um, go back to, I'd actually be interested to hear about Colombia, but just to go back to Tarhuna for one moment, just because the way I understood it, the, the, the plan was like something out of a James Bond movie, that this was an underground chemical weapons factory. And at least one of the, one iteration of the plan that was pitched was to come over the beachhead in Marine Corps hovercrafts out to whatever range they could get, drop ramp, get off in vehicles, and then convoy out to the location of this lab that they would have had to bring engineers out and they would have brought um, mining equipment, drilling equipment, drilled a hole through the ground down into the underground weapons lab and then pour an explosive slurry down the chute to flood the factory and then pop the fuse and blow it. Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazing plan. We did that, that. I had never heard that plan. It, it sure wasn't part of, of our plan. <laughs> you know, Jack, all, all we did was actions on the objective. Like we never even figured out or were asked to figure out how we're going to get there. It was like, here you are. Right. And, right. You know, this was before the unit had, had a Doug's or, a, you know, capability, um, you know, very heavy breaching, uh, drilling, core cutting and that sort of thing but it, it is it is that target that started steering the unit that way so like you know so now instead of just like uh, a foot thick concrete wall with a little bit of rebar in there um, we're going down range and the engineers have poured this big old wall that's like three feet thick you know with a whole bunch of heavy uh, rebar in there and we got to breach it so the breaches were getting bigger. So the, the support, um, the logistic requirements was really ramping up. Like we were having to figure out how to get way underground, um, how to get, how to cover a lot, a lot of distance underground, how to get communications from underground to the top or even from one end of the underground to the other. Um, and uh, we were just like solving the problems, solving the problems. Like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna get ATVs down there. So well, there's no air down there. Okay, we're gonna push air in, you know, with these 
above ground devices. They're going to force air into the tunnel. Get the ATVs are going to foul the air with the exhaust. Okay, the ATVs are getting equipped with freaking rebreathers, is what they are. You know, that cycle that exhaust through and scrub it, clean it, so that they're not contaminating the air, the, the little bit of air inside the tunnel with um, with fumes. You know, and that also introduced the the the, un the unfortunate necessity to have to carry contained breathing devices on our backs with the rest of our assault kit. And we were carrying actual Dreger rebreathers, you know, that are that are pushing pure O2 with a soda lime scrubbing that are allowing us to keep breathing our same breaths over and over for like three and four hours at a time. And that was great, except the weight, you know. Sure. Well, I remember the first we tested those, basically we just, we're just like wearing them around kind of slick, you know, just shorts and a t-shirt. Could we take off running, you know, around a building a few times and see, you know, what kind of, what kind of cruise speed we could maintain with that and still breathe, you know, with that volume that those things are producing. And then slowly kidding up to uh, a really just absolutely ludicrous configuration with so much stuff, you know, and, and in the end it turned into and thankfully it wasn't the boys complaining, but the command recognized that the men are, they can't do the fight and they can't do the breach at the same time. So that's what brought like a whole different group of guys all from Green Berets, again, 18 Charlie engineer types. They would do the heavy breach and we would just do the fight. Right. And, you know, and simple genius, man. I'm just so glad that it happened that way. And, and there comes a time where when it comes to breaching, like P for plenty just doesn't work. Like you have to, people have to actually know what they're doing. Like they have to know the math. They have to know how, how to cut they, or, or how to do something as opposed to like, let's just stack more on here. Yeah, you're right, man. And the P for plenty um, went out the window with a, on a particular target that was attacking chemical reactor vessels, you know, the huge, huge mixers, cauldrons, to destroy them without spilling the liquid inside. And to me, that was almost like a joke. You know, it's like, like a, you know, I was checking to see what day of April it was. Yeah. But, but it, it made sense. And we actually uh, came up with techniques to be able to put that vessel out of action without yes. putting a hole in it and spilling the contents. Yeah, it's like blow up this glass of water, but don't spill the water. Right, yeah. that's fascinating, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, it, I mean, I was actually, I was already out of the unit at the time. I knew that that was a problem we had been lo looking at, but um, the, the effort continued and lo and behold, where they came to test that um, the new explosive design charges against chemical reactors, they came to, the Nevada test site where I was working, you know, right. it was just dumb luck. And they came there, the project was called Sidecar. And um, they said, Hey, George, you want this project? And they started describing it to me. I'm like, Holy crap, that could only be the unit. And so, yeah, I took the project and they hit those vessels and they, they did it. You know, I mean, we filled them up with this, uh, this chemical precursor, uh, that was that was not dangerous, but it was one of the it was one of the chemicals that was involved in the actual 
slurry or mix, you know, that we were going to attack. And it smelled very strongly of pears, the fruit, right? And I, I, I used to say the shit smelled more like pears than actual pears, uh, you know, tongue in cheek. But yeah, they, they fired on those vessels and uh, destroyed the insides, the coatings on the insides, which was glass, essentially was a glass, and um, <clears throat> which completely fouled the contents. But when you, when you went out there, um, you, you smelled no pears. And, and, and that wasn't the test. It wasn't, well, if you don't smell pears, then you're a success. No, we had, we had you know, 100-pound heads out there with some real sensitive uh, collectors that are collecting parts per million and sniffing the air for that chemical. So um, I was really proud of them. They did a good job. They were successful. It's something that I had absolutely no idea of path forward at the time. I, I love the gung-ho attitude that uh, a lot of, so many unit guys have that they're like, hey, let's get it done. This is a problem. Let's solve it. Uh, it's just really cool to hear some of that stuff. And um, I, I guess I'd, I'd be remiss then if, if I didn't kind of continue the story a little bit and ask you about Columbia, it, because you would have rolled over there after Escobar uh, got deep sixed. Yeah, you're right on, Jack. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it's, it's a coincidence. It's not an irony, but it's a coincidence that um, I just recently finished watching the season of Narcos. <laughs> you know, like people say, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. I'm like, so I finally did watch it. And uh, it was, it was, it was eerie. It was eerie watching it because all the names, you know, that they're, that they're using in there. I'm like, Oh, holy crap. Yeah. I know those names. And, and uh, I've been trying, I've been, I've talked to Stephen Murphy a little bit. I'm trying to get him on this show. So Stephen, if you're out there, uh, hit me up, return my phone calls. I want to get you scheduled. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, the unit went to assist the, the, the local uh, Bloque Busqueda in uh, Medellin in that cartel when Pablo had power. And we got taken out of power. I mean, he was already in cahoots, <laughs> I guess, the, with the, uh, the Cali cartel, you know, with the Orjuela brothers and Pacho Herrera is, is the other guy. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I mean, they were, they were doing business. They were doing dirty deals to each other. You know, it, uh, it was not, not going well at all. But when Pablo got taken out, then the, the Cali cartel just sucked the, the power uh, right up and they became the number ones. So they sent us, they sent a couple of us in there, in the country to um, honestly just try to, to wrangle the damn assault force, the Colombian assault force and um, into, into action and to, to, you know, we had a really robust Intel package that was working at the embassy in, in Bogota and they were doing a, a splendid job and we were in SATCOM communications with them in the mountain hideout where we were um, just on the outskirts of, of Cali, Colombia. And we, we had a force of about 20 guys, 20 commandos, especially select, uh, that these are the guys that are going to be used to go after the friggin' cartel, these brothers. 
and uh, their couple of associates. <clears throat> and it, it ended up being, um, I started feeling like kind of like a butler to these guys, you know? I mean, I was there for a long time and just, you know, daily trying to, to get the, to get the commanders, you know, to, uh, to let us go do something based on this intel we're getting. And it was really, it was really a hell of a job. And, and we tried to keep them motivated, uh, provide training for them, you know, to keep them fit somehow and keep their motivation up somehow. But what it ended up being was, a, was a classic, uh, green beret mission, you know, yeah. is what it was training these guys, it's all the things that Green Berets would be doing. And um, I mean, the main guy I was with was also, um, him and I both were from 7th Special Forces, so we speak Spanish. We're, we're like a couple, a couple of the only Spanish speakers in the unit. That's why we got why we got picked. So, so far, Spanish, Serbo-Croat, Mandarin Chinese. Uh, Mandarin and Cantonese Chinese. Uh, French, German, Spanish, Mandarin, Cantonese, Serbo-Croatian. Yeah, I mean, yeah, hell of an asset to the team. Obviously, I'm not. I'm not saying that just to be a kiss ass, but I mean, it's rare to find somebody who speaks that many languages. Yeah, I mean, if, if I had, if I had a, a, uh, all my deployments kind of reflect that. Well, I came into the army already with, with, uh, with Cantonese, Chinese. And I learned Mandarin on my own <clears throat> and the others, I had some deployment, um, got me something, you know, sparked you have to, to want to learn those languages. And so I did. Um, <clears throat> when, when you order Chinese food, do the people look at you like, how does this gringo know, <laughs> know all of this? I, I got a lot of corny stories about that, 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 that you've probably already heard before, but <laughs> I, I will say that, not so much now, you know, because like I'm a, yeah, I'm a yeah. grown up, a mature guy. And, um, but when I was 19, I could draw a crowd at Chinatown, <laughs> you know, freaking crowd. People just stopped dead in their tracks. They're all looked like I was running for office. You know, they just <laughs> was pouring around me, just listening, you know, say something else, say something else. No. So um, in, in Colombia, it was more by, with, and through the, the host nation. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, it was there's such a mess. I mean, you got the president, Samper was his name. Then we had we had a a, a brigade level colonel who I swear to God, you know, this it sounds like another episode of Narcos, but it's not, man. This this colonel was uh, was on the cartel salary. <laughs> of course, he's the guy that gave permission to our captain and our major hiding in the mountains with us that gave them the permission to execute, you know, which he wouldn't do it because he was on the cartel's payroll. And, and I, can just sit, I, mean, I can just sit here and say that we had this colonel that was on the cartel's payroll, but it, it, he really was on their payroll and it came out in the news. And it came out in, he made the cover of Columbia's uh, answer to People Magazine, okay? So People Magazine is, that's not something you would write your book reports on, but there's still, I mean, there's a bunch of truth in there. 
he came out on the cover of the magazine, laid in bed with a hooker. It was a cartel set up hooker. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't a great picture, but you know, you especially the. I, mean, I have, I have, I have the cover. I tore a cover off, and I, I still have it today. But I think, it, I think I Xerox copied the cover, so it's a very poor rendition of an already pretty poor uh, clandestine camera uh, shot of him laying with his hooker. But you can clearly tell that's a dude and, and a female, you know, all tangled up. So that's how they, that's how they uh, were blackmailing him even further past, you know, what he would do on their payroll. So they, they pretty much had, they had him lock, stock and barrel with the blackmail. And his, listen to this, the airplane we flew on between uh, Santa Fe, Bogota to Santiago de Cali was an agency aircraft, you know, it was an otter, twin engine otter, two engines. And um, I was on the plane once with a couple of people, oddly enough, it's this attractive young lady with a baby, right? And to come to find out is that that was the, the colonel's wife. So that was his wife. And um, he used the agency aircraft to fly her back and forth numerous times, you know, unauthorized, I'm sure. But I, but I found out that was his wife and his baby. And he had to break the news to his young wife, you know, and baby that he was on, uh, on the take for the cartel. And that he was, you know, seen with this prostitute and that People Magazine is going to show the, the story pretty soon. So he's like, I got to tell her, I got to tell her, you know, because she can't be walking through <laughs> and pick up this people. That's my husband, you know. So it, the, the rumor was, and I'll say this time it was a rumor, the, the rest, I mean, I know that that is the way it is. But he took her to see a movie. I think it was Clear Present Danger. He took her to see that movie and he's, what do you think of this movie, you know? And they got into a discussion about the movie and he goes, well, I, I'm suffering a very similar fate at present. <laughs> and I gotta tell you about it. So, I mean, whether that's, uh, you know, just a rumor, it's still funny. Uh, but uh, I mean, shit, shit was over for us with that guy in his position. So, so the unit had to kind of like step back from that. We did. We pulled out completely. I was there when we, I pulled the mission out, everything out and brought it back to the States. Um, but, but even before that, <clears throat> so somewhere past the halfway mark, they had uh, uh, national elections, right? So we had to pull out, come back to brag because we didn't know who was going to get elected and what their policy was going to be towards the gringos in physically in country hunting the cartel. I mean, if, the, if Samper got reelected, that didn't necessarily mean his policy was going to carry through. And the new guy, yeah, we would have no idea if they wanted us there or not. So we came back to the States. The election happened and Samper got reelected and his policy was still, you know, the same. So we scrambled back and, and picked up the mission again and, and, uh, and, and just let it fizzle the hell out and until I got the word to bring everything back. It, it just never went anywhere. There was never a, uh, a culmination as, said, uh, as such the way there was with Pablo Escobar. 
No, no. I mean, those guys did get hammered, but it had nothing to do with me being there. And it was, you know, it was later on. Um, yeah, they, they all got scarfed up. Oh, who, who took them out? A rival cartel? No, they know they got scarfed up by authorities. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I think the closest thing we ever had to getting to uh, Miguel uh, Orjuela was we've got some intel that he was a he was a, he had to have a dialysis kidney dialysis you know however many times that is every other day or something like that and we got wind of uh, the hospital he was going to be getting the dialysis at and <clears throat> the day so that was pretty that was pretty big because we could send in our we had some reconnaissance bubbas that could go walk through buildings so we could send that guy in there we sent him in and he did a walk by of uh, of the room where Miguel was supposed to be in. And he said, yeah, man, there was there was a dude on a dialysis machine in there that looked awfully a lot like like uh, Miguel. And um, yeah, we launched the force. The force got around the building and they did nothing. Somebody mysteriously called him back, you know, to base. Uh-huh. And that was like the closest thing we ever came to do anything significant. Um, I, I mean, we were not authorized to go on these assaults with them, but on one assault, they came to a door that was locked and the lawyer, they took a lawyer with them on the assault. It, was, it wasn't a full up lawyer. It, was like, it, was, it wasn't like an abogado, it was like a licenciado, some, some subset, a very small subset of a full blown lawyer. And we don't have them in this country, so I don't know what to compare it to but they would take these people on the assault and they would, can we do this? They flip through their book. Yes. You know, but they came to the door and they, they needed behind this damn door and it was locked and they wanted to, to, to charge it. I'm like, yeah, slap a charge on that thing and cut it in half. And the lawyer said, Oh no. So we couldn't do the explosive. And so they, I said, ram that son of a bitch, you know, kick it down, throw a dude up against it. Rangers proved that works, and the lawyer wouldn't let them damage the door. So, out of our frustration, the assault forces was called back to the pulverina where we were hiding and saying, We need Carlitos. That was me, I was Carlito in country. They go, We need Carlitos here to pick the lock, you know. Uh, and I'm like, Yeah, I'm down with that. Um, so I went, and you know, I had assault gear, uh, and I put on a balaclava, you know, with the, the eyes and the mouth as a disguise. And I just went up forward of the, uh, of the stack and I worked on that door <clears throat> and <clears throat> got it open after an embarrassingly long time, you know, because I was all cool. I showed up, everybody's like, yeah, Carlito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the next thing you know, it was like kind of nodding off to sleep and I'm still working on the, I don't know, Colombian doors, but I got it open. Then I immediately backed away and let those guys go in. And <clears throat> they got they got stacks of freaking pesos of money that you could have built, you could have built like a throne out of and sat in it for photos. They got so much money that was clearly uh, cartel money, but they didn't get any persons. They just got some basic intel, some photos, all that freaking cash. Um but yeah, I mean, no persons. So 
it's just a story anything really to brag about. <clears throat> Actually, as you're talking about this, George, it kind of reminded me of something else. Um, I don't think I've ever asked you about or really asked anybody about, but the, the Japanese embassy in Peru, when that happened, is it true that there were that the unit was involved in that as far as taking the embassy back? There were there were guys on the ground, yeah. Yeah. There's I mean, in Waco, Texas, there were guys on the ground, you know. But the capac the capacity in Peru is a mystery to me because I never bothered to ask or find out. Mm -hmm. But um but my troop sergeant, every time we did a scenario for CQB, he would always go, okay, you're in a hangar in Peru. You know, I'm like, how many more times do we have to live this hangar in Peru? You know, clearly he was there. You know, so he has to relive the hangar in Peru. But the, the, the thing with Waco, though, is you, you had told me before, I mean, when you yeah. say there were boots on the ground, I mean, it was like a guy five miles away in a cafe, right? Oh, yeah, he was probably five miles away it was like a Denny's or a big boy or something like that but he sat in there all day long reading efficient magazines you know and drinking coffee and he never went forward you know to the Koresh building and he was never asked to go forward and he was never asked for any kind of advice and this guy was definitely not about running around going hey use me listen to me he just wasn't that kind of guy He's just make it known. I'm sitting here. If you got a question, come on up. And other, other uh, drug enforcement agency guys and FBI guys, they're all decked out in this kit, sitting in this damn Denny's, you know, eating scrambled eggs. You know, so come on, guys. You know, relax. Take the gear off. Leave it in the car. Guard the car. Years ago, I, I wrote an article about operation pocket planner i believe it was called i'd have to go and look it up again but it was the georgia prison riot story and yeah. and yeah and then there were that that was in the 80s and uh there, there were unit guys there in the background but you know boots on the ground take that for what it's worth no, nothing actually happened no we we had uh we had long gunners there i i knew actually knew and breachers guys. huh and breachers yeah, yeah, yes. And when you um, say long gunners, you're talking about snipers, correct? Yeah, yeah, snipers. Just, just for, yeah, Thanks, our, our viewers are not familiar with the lingo. Okay. Uh, so we had snipers there, you know, and um, they were actually laying behind their guns. Not like they were going to take shots, but, you know, they've got their glass there. They've got, you know, uh, high quality Shorovsky sniper scopes that are very powerful. So they could, they, they watched in the prison, you know, during the riot. And um, certainly they'll, they'll take shots if they're ever authorized somehow, uh, which, is, which is pretty slim. But uh, I remember one of the, the guys, uh, these guys were my instructors when I was in OTC, these, these snipers, senior guys. They're so, and they started talking about that situation because there are photos hanging out in the hall, you know, of them standing on steps of the prison and doing different things. You know, they I think they had ATF jackets on, wearing ATF jackets. Maybe, maybe FBI. Maybe. Because HRT was out there with them. All right, bingo, that was it. So, they, so that was cool, they got to wear FBI jackets and get photos. But to look at the photos, there's just like nothing. You know, it's like, what am I looking at here? So we 
asked our instructors, hey, what's, what's that? They go, oh, it's the Georgia prison riot. Tell us about it, tell us about it. So uh, nothing really, the fire's burning. Uh, we're just gawking at them through our sniper scopes. They're like, what was it like? What did you see? What could you see? And they said, you have to trust me. You don't want to know. Uh, well, course, there's really want to know. But. Well, I mean, I don't know what, what that's about, but I, the one interesting anecdote about that. So it was a Cuban prison riot. Uh, Fidel Castro had sent all the cu empty Cuban prisons as part of the Muriel boat lift. You know, supposedly they were refugees, oh. he, he, but oh. he emptied his prisons and sent them here. So these dudes uh, had a prison riot in a couple of different prisons across the United States. And um, the, so the Cubans had this uprising in the prison. Um, there was also white supremacists in the prison. And one of them was just such a lunatic, like a, a crazy murderer, that the Cubans actually balled this guy up, hogtied him, and just left him at like the front gate of the prison. It was like, hey, FBI, like, please get this guy out of here. Like, take him, just take him, get him out of here. And uh, so the Cubans just delivered that dude up to the, to the authorities. It's amazing, man. Ugh. But it, it, was a, it was a negotiated end to the prison riot. So that's why, you know, yeah. your guys in, in HRT, they didn't have to breach any walls or shoot anybody or anything. Yeah, like yeah. That. And um, a, a, an annoying thing about the Waco piece was is that I remember um, Janet Reno, you know, she got, she got hammered with that Waco problem. Yep. You know, and she was just like barely in office. So I, I have a little bit of sympathy for her because what a mess you know and she's got all these people breathing out down her neck mm -hmm. what are you doing about it what are you doing about it then when it went south and it was a mess i remember her saying oh, we had the delta force there and that annoyed yep. me yep it's like well okay were we even there in the first place it's just like as a um you know so well we we did everything we could i mean look we got delta so I mean, you know, uh, bad and they were involved, then it's probably an impossibility that it ever would have been a success or some shit like that. But I just didn't like the fact oh, that it was it, it was fucked up that they threw the unit under the bus. Um, Jerry Boykin writes about it in his in his memoir about yeah. how they were asked to consult. And so like the the FBI or DEA or whoever it was, they consulted with with Jerry Boykin, who's the commander of the unit at the time. Yeah, and, and like maybe his sergeant major, I don't know who else they uh, they also brought into that um, to consult. And, you know, according to what Boykin says, like we told him, hey, don't do this stupid stuff. You do this frontal assault. It's going to be a disaster, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they went ahead and did it. It turned into a shit show. And then they threw you guys under the bus after the fact, as if it was your plan or you had advised them or something like that. Like, it's, you're, yeah, you're right. It's kind of messed up how they did that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so there's that <clears throat> the guy that ironically the guy that um was sitting there you know reading the fishing magazines and drinking coffee he actually got booted years later from the unit for for going fishing yeah he <laughs> check it out man just, just stay with me here he um we were on alert, so we had a 50-mile restricted radius, and he wanted to go to a, a, a bass fishing tournament. So he asked permission, and the boss said no, you know, wouldn't let him break the 50 miles. 
Well, he, he went anyway, is what he did. And the way he got caught is he won the tournament. <laughs> and the boss saw the guy on TV, you know, on the news, you know, so-and-so who wins the bass fishing tournament. And there's his man. <laughs> so the next day at work, he's like, you, Joe, I need to talk to you. Yeah, he, uh, he fired him. Then he had to come talk to, to us, the men, you know, and explain to him why he, that he let this guy go, man. And um, he had fucking tears in his eyes. He said, man, yeah, I bet. He just, you know, ultimately he said, uh, you know, I lost the trust. I lost the trust, you know, so I have to let him go. So he did that. And to, 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 to finish that story with some more irony is um, the, the guy, Joe, he was, he was being, he had been put in for some awards, you know, I don't know what they were. Um, so they, they brought him back to the unit months later, you know, to get his, to get his awards presented by the boss. Well, he showed up wearing a fucking bass fishing tournament t-shirt <laughs> and the boss had to pin him on that t-shirt, but they, they laughed. They both laughed about it. Well, uh, that was nice of them that they didn't, you know, didn't try to send him out with too much bad blood yeah yeah i mean the guy was wrong man he he deserved yeah. it yes oh man yeah i know another uh a unit member it cannot be the same guy because this dude would be significantly younger um who's a uh professional bass fisher in retirement and and there's probably some diligent viewers out there who can piece two and two together and figure out who he is uh really really nice guy really good guy um, but that's his thing. Bass fishing loves it. Yeah, uh, Pat McNamara is addicted to bass fishing. To oh, fly. really? I, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, he he'll he'll tell you, man. It's just like if he has, if he has an hour of free time, an hour he thinks he believes that is enough time to race to this, you know, the creek or the pond, and get his boat down and cast like thirteen times. I can get thirteen casts in, you know. He's addicted to it. No bones about it, man. He's serious. Pat, Pat is just a super interesting guy. I wish I could get him on here to tell some of his stories, but he he won't really tell like unit stories. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, he. It's not his thing, but he, he's he's he, and I respect that. But he, he's a really good guy. Do you feel like a lot of guys, or a, a significant portion of the guys uh, from Delta? have that type of personality trait where there's something they focus on like that i don't want to say compulsive in a bad way but but that they have like this mm -hmm. i don't know quoting john wick like a singular focus but but, but they're able to uh th th they grab hold of something and and they become very good at it whatever it is whether it's bat you know bass fishing or whatever else i mean for you i mean it's been the languages and the tech and like you, you're able to to grab hold of something and focus on it, unlike most of us. Um, I did. I I always noticed that the guys had some pretty unusual hobbies. A lot of them did, and yeah, they were pretty immersed in those hobbies. In my squadron, for some reason, we had we had a a, a, a pretty large number of woodworkers. You know, like cabinet grade woodworkers. That, you know, we and I was one of them, that we would work feverishly on weekends, you know, building the next piece of really nice furniture for our houses until there were until there was nothing left to build. And we'd start 
getting rid of the oldest pieces that we built that we viewed as pieces of shit now after you know a couple more years of working under our belt. But we had those, all those productive type hobbies, you know, guys working with metal. We had a bunch of knife smiths, man, measure smiths. Yeah. Produces some ungodly quality freaking knives. I mean, I bought a knife from like a guy in B squadron, you know, I said, oh, I'm gonna carry this knife, you know, in combat with me. What satisfaction would that be, you know, having a knife that was built by one of your buddies? Um, uh Oh, it's probably after your time. I was thinking of a guy named with well, last name of H, who built knives, made knives. Horgan. Yeah, yeah. I have that's my that's my yeah. knife, a Horgan knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a twin brother, John. We're we we've stayed in, in close contact. So, yeah, yeah. It's and kind Bob. of eerie for me, man, because I look at John and it's like you know Bob. Yeah, and Bob passed away in Al Qaim right in two thousand five. Yeah, yeah. Him I and think. his uh, his newest junior guy on his team. Basically, they they both got headshot in like the last room of a last building, some shit like that. And <clears throat> Bob was actually he. Well, you hear this a lot. He was not even supposed to be on that mission because his he was flying back to the states to retire from the army. So and the only reason he went, he volunteered to go because he, he wanted to give that new guy just that, that one last, um, you know, assault with him. Right, right. You know? yeah. Like some, some like last bit of mentoring before he left him. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, and, and I'm sure that, I'm sure that the guy had something to do with it too. He's probably like, you know, Bob, because that's just, I could just see Bob, that would be him. It's like, Oh, that dude had to, he, he had to ask, but he asked. And now, you know, Bob's going to do it. They're like, I, I sure wish you were on this, just this one more. I can see yeah, that yeah. because he's definitely wasn't like, you know, I'm going to bless you with one last, uh, you know, hour of my presence. <laughs> Absolutely not. So I'm pretty sure that's the way it played out. Well, I, George, I uh, re really appreciate your time tonight. And D Dave, I don't know if you have anything else. I thought we, that maybe for our bonus segment, uh, George, we could talk to you about some of the submarine ops because um, that, that stuff was really cool uh, that you had mentioned so. to me. Um, we do have some questions we need to get to. And I, okay. I apologize to everybody for like sort of going out of order, but I was trying to keep the uh, questions like pertinent to the conversation. Sure. Um, but uh, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, ask George if he has any stories about uh, soft personnel clashing with or not seeing eye to eye with regular army personnel. How about officers versus NCOs? Well, we got a story about an uh, NCO versus officer clash. Um, but were there problems like when you're in Bosnia, Columbia, any place else where you had problems with big army? Not I did, I did not have any problems uh, when I was with the unit, but I do, I, I, there was trouble um, getting along with big army when I was in S when in the green berets. Okay. Yeah, there was. What, a, was that on their part, on your part? Or was it a mix? The, the um, man, that's, that's almost like a finger point, finger pointing session. It was like, well, he was an asshole. Well, he thought I was an asshole. But I, I was forewarned that we, we went to, to Japan 
and we took the uh, Schofield Barracks from Hawaii, men from yeah. there, and we met them there and we trained them in skiing and cold weather subjects, you know, shelters and all that sort of thing. And the skiing and his, his, uh, the company commanders, his staff, you know, some captains and such, they, they told me ahead of time, it's like the boss don't like, he didn't like SF, you know, he doesn't understand them. He thinks they're, they're a bunch of cowboys and, and I immediately got it like, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there's a basic load of, of O's that, that view SF that way, you know, they're the cowboys and they, they put their hands in their pockets for Christ's right, sake. Right, right, right. You know, and their hair's too long, their mustaches aren't regulation. And that's just petty, absolute petty nonsense. You can't even, you can't even talk to somebody like that. They're, they're so fucked up, you know? So they, they, they hate you in the first place. They don't know, they don't understand your mission. They don't know how to employ you when they're in charge of you. Um, and, and I see, I see, I hear it from Green Beret teams, you know, in the sandbox, you know, they fall under a command that's uh, doesn't know how to employ them, didn't know what to do with them. And um, those guys end up just like sitting on their hands for so many days. But I didn't run into anything with Delta because we were just so isolated from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just walked all over big army. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, we yeah. were answering to national command authority. Right. So, and that was a group. That was a great thing. Um, it was a, it was nothing but a plus really, but, but being in, in Green Berets, it was, yeah, it was difficult. The clashes were definitely there. Yeah. Uh, Gordon, thank you very much. Uh, George, which country or group of countries are you the most concerned with in terms of threats to the West? Have the Russian Chinese soft uh, evolved much, uh, soft special operations forces for those of you, evolved much since the Cold War days? Um, China is China is it. That is the biggest uh, threat right now, the way I see it. And uh, I've always thought they were a tremendous threat. Um, and uh, I got a lot more vocal about it since the pandemic. You know, mm -hmm. like I've 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 been far less PC about about it. And about you know speaking my mind about what's bo been bothering me about them for for so long, um, but man, yeah, I, I absolutely see them as the the number one threat to us. And do you feel as though their uh, special operations capabilities are comparable to ours, or do you think it's it's more just uh, economic or intelligence wise, or like where? You know, like, I don't know how much you stay on top of it or, or, or if you have an assessment. I don't, I don't have, I don't have a technical assessment about their capabilities. Um, I just, uh, I frankly don't think they're ever going to be as, as effective fighters as the West, just because of their, just the extent of their, their culture and what's more important to them, um, you know, as opposed to what's the most important things to us, you know, right. national disgrace and humiliation uh, and, you know, cutting your guts out because of that. Right. I mean, you look at, you look at Midway, the battle of Midway, and you got Nagumo that, you know, lost his freaking ship and cut, did Harikiri, cut his, killed himself. Then you got, oh man, Fletcher, 
<laughs> you got you got the American counterpart got his flagship sunk out from underneath and he just packed his bags and moved to the next ship. Right. So that's Asia and that's the West. Well, there, there what was the book? Uh, somebody from either Jack, some, one of you guys will know or somebody from our viewer audience will know. Uh, there was a book, something Carnage, I think, or I don't know, I'm thinking comic books right now, Absolute Carnage, but maybe it wasn't even Carnage, but there was a book uh, maybe 15 years ago or whatever about east versus west conflicts and and essentially what happens when that occurs and the individualism of the west and how it tends to prevail in these armed conflicts and i'm not i'm not talking about the u.s versus china on like this national economic level right now mm -hmm. but just in terms of uh the greeks versus the persians and you know and, and all these different types of of uh situations where it, a Western culture went to war on an individual basis with an Eastern culture and, mm -hmm. and sort of the fatalism with that a lot of Eastern cultures have and, and how uh, the West tends to prevail in those situations because of that, you know, uh, it's very, do you guys know what I'm talking about? I, I'm, no, I, I do. I just, uh, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make up some comments to fill time. I gotta have something worthy of saying and just I yeah just i'm just trying to remember what book that title was okay uh anyway um uh, uh shane brownlee thank you very much he uh says great work fellas uh bill or uh vasilis says uh hello geo keep up the work, good work jack and dave um dat cohen asked uh how well do you know larry vickers pretty pretty damn well pretty damn well we go way back and I, I can I I can contact him anytime, but I, I don't. He's not this the type, and I'm not the type. Just say, hey, call to see how you're doing. No, it's you know, Larry. I gotta have something specific to to be uh, pestering Larry. Like like help me help me hide this body. Yeah, <laughs> Larry's a damn good guy, man. Uh, um, you know, I'm aware of his personality and. Uh, but man, nah, we've uh, we've pretty much celebrated that guy ever ever since we've known him. You know, and we yeah. go back to Green Berets together uh, in first group. You know, like in 1983 or 84, and he he was actually the armor, the seventh group armor of our battalion because he was just this guy that just was so nuts about you know weapons. He was so good with weapons. He knew more than your average armor. And he wasn't an armor, but they let him do it. So he was that good. Yeah. So then, you know, we all disappear for a decade and show up, you know, in Delta. Yeah. Um, Ian, thank you very much. Uh, Ian says, I hate to ask, but George uh, was at the source of the rumor. A big rumor coming out of Mogadishu was the decreased lethality of 556 and that everybody wanted Shugart's M14. Can George speak to that? The, you know, um, yeah, there's there's truth. In it. Um, I mean, I mean, definitely a five five six, uh, it, button heads with a seven six two. You know, fifty one, in in terms of penetration. So I mean, even if it's in the jungle, uh, you know the deal. I mean, guys in Vietnam, they they would pick up an they would pick up an AK if they had a chance. And they would want to use that. And that wasn't so much an ammunition, a ballistics issue as it was 
you know, the, the damn rifles, the, the very brand sure. new M16s, man, they had trouble. Right. They had trouble. So, but I mean, again, that's, so you got a really fast moving bullet, a much slower moving bullet, but one that penetrates so, so much better. I mean, yeah, the 556 five, is not penetrating much in an urban, in a mount setting, an urban setting. It's not going to, it's going to go through the glass, but it's not, it'll go through a lot of the wood, but it's not going to go through. So what they're up against is like all that masonry, uh, um, whatever you call that, the, those masonry bricks, the cinder block brick type stuff, you know. Um, so our guys are shooting five, five, six. It doesn't penetrate that, but the seven, six, two is knocking it apart. Yeah. So just in light of that alone, you know, had was making some folks reel in the saddle a bit. And there was a there was a discussion, man, for years afterward, and it came down to we, we were hauling in everyone out there that was making an assault rifle in 7.62. And um, H&K was fielding a lot of damn good weapons in 7.62. And they were all, every day they were somewhere downrange, you know, just floating around because um, the command wanted guys to get behind these guns, 7.62, and see which ones were the, were the best, you know, which was more accurate, which ones were putting more rounds through without uh, preventative maintenance. Um, so we, we were looking, you know, at getting away from the 5.6 and go to a 7.62. And then when the M4 carbine came out, that didn't go away, but it quieted a lot of, it, of that worry down. It, it, and the bottom line is that, again, uh, you know, with, it, in big armies, there's your M4. That's all you get, man. But, I mean, guys could go and check out anything they wanted from the arms room any day for any specific mission. Um, a guy on my team, man, his, his suppressed weapon of choice was, was an M3 grease gun suppressed. Boy, he loved that thing. And man, I think would knock some shit down, you know, and he loved it. It's quite as I'd go for, I'd go for the Mac 10, the suppressed Mac 10 and the briefcase myself. That's just me. That's just me. That damn briefcase gun, man. I mean, we had a couple of briefcase guns. They, they were fitted to a heckler and cocked, uh, uh, Kurtz. Yeah. 5k Kurtz. Yeah. And it mounted in there and it snapped down and all this crap and, it had a trigger that, that ended up being like this wooden dowel that came out right into the handle. And you push that dowel down, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, but I mean, you didn't fire that thing like hanging to your side. You could, but I mean, that was, you're not fooling anybody. Hey, someone's raking us with machine gun fire. It's not that guy because he's just carrying a brief. No, to fire it, guys would pick that thing up, you know, and hold it up high and, and try to aim it somehow. And stabilize it, point it. So, but it freaking worked. I can only imagine it like just smoking inside that briefcase with 30 rounds of expended brass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could hear it all clinking around inside there as it ejects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never, never used it, never even remotely came to a situation where I thought I was going to use that stupid thing. I would have to be wearing a Dick Tracy hat. <laughs> with, a big, with a big watch yeah well they, we, everybody has big watches now so it doesn't matter yeah and the, and the girl from the Advon troop dressed up like Carmen Sandiego 
um, thank you, Andrew. Uh, and and uh, th I should have gotten to this earlier, but uh, when you're talking about the the uh, semi, uh, you know, uh, with the recce vehicles, the reconnaissance vehicles, and and the sedans being kind of people suspect it, and then you guys get this or get a big truck. Uh, Andrew says nobody would ever expect the recce monster truck. Um, <laughs> And I expect that that's probably said in the same tone as nobody would ever expect the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ian, thank you. Uh, George's French is also good enough to stop me in my tracks, and I've spoken it since I was a kid, and get by and get by fine in France. George, how many languages? Uh, you guys might. How many languages do you feel? I don't want to say. We, I think we got to five. Five. Six. 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 And I claim those because I have uh, DLPT exams to, to back them up at some point. George, and, and although if we weren't talking about DLPT, but let's say that you just wanted to go somewhere and hang out. Let's, you know, you didn't need, need to be fully mission capable, but you wanted to be able to get around town. How many languages would you say you could do that in? I think eight, Dave. I think I could do that in eight. So jealous. Uh, uh, Irene, thank you very much. She said, uh, enjoying the show, uh, guys. Great job. Um, DJ, wow, DJ, thank you very much. Very generous donation. Uh, great show, guys. At Jack and Dave, it ages with a single malt, uh, or ages like a single malt. At George, thank you for writing and sharing your wisdom, especially your, your articles on behavioral health issues and solving the problems thrown your way. Well, that's pretty gracious of him. Uh, and Andrew, thank you again. And it was Carnage and Culture by Victor Davis Hanson. Oh, okay. That, that was, was good. good that yeah. was good, yeah. Carnage and Culture? Yeah, it, and it, it was a fascinating book. I can't remember when it came out, uh, maybe, ten, maybe 15 years ago. I don't remember when I read it. But, um, but it was basically about the culture, how when the West meets the East in these battles, how the sort of the individualism of the, the West tends to prevail over sort of the more fatalism of, of the East, um, you know. Uh, nice read, guaranteed. It's very interesting. Uh, Ian, thank you again. Thanks very much, for, uh, George, for the answer on 762. And Andrew says, uh, I am now positive that it was Victor Davis Hanson. So uh, thanks again, Andrew. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so those, those are the questions. I mean, uh, a okay. lot of people have, have chatted. I mean, we'd have to go through the whole chat, but, but uh, thank you for, and guys, we don't, if you ask a question in the chat, we don't mean to dismiss it. We're just on very limited time. Um, yeah, we've and, already kept George for two and a half hours and, yeah, and, uh, and, I'm, gonna, another... and, and, and I'm gonna try to twist his arm for a little bit to um, talk a little bit more for the bonus segment, if that's okay with you, George. I'm good to go. I oh, appreciate it, man. Uh, really do. Um, you know, thanks so much for spending some time with us tonight. Um, Dave, do you have anything else before, uh, before we call it a night? No, that that's George. Thank you. It, yeah. it has been amazing. Hey guys, uh, we haven't have actually said, but please, if you have not subscribed to our channel, uh, subscribe, hit the little bell for notifications and you might get a notification every now and again, if YouTube decides to uh, deem you worthy. Um, we have a Patreon, which Jack links in the uh, description, yep. um, even a dollar a month, guys. And uh, look, we know times are hard for a lot of people right now. Um, so if you can't, you can't, but keep us in mind. A dollar a month helps us 
uh, keep our place rented and, and yeah. the lights on and everything. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that that's about it. George, do you have anything that you want to promote? Yeah. Oh, no, no. <laughs> All right, right on, George. Uh, when some of these writing endeavors get off the ground, you want to come and talk about your book or whatever, uh, we're more than happy to have you to talk about that. And uh, actually already doing that, you know, <laughs> this format has been. Yeah, much. yeah, no, I hear you. Um, but we, we can do it again anytime. And um, yeah, otherwise, thanks again. And uh, we'll do the bonus segment talking about some of your experiences uh, working on submarines with a dive team and locking out of subs. Um, that stuff's really interesting. And uh, next week, we're going to have Robert Adolf on. He is a retired lieutenant colonel. Uh, had a special forces career. Um, primarily what we're going to be talking about is his second career after he retired from SF and he went to work uh, for the UN doing UN security. And he has the uh, notoriety of having been twice demoted and twice promoted uh, in Ooh. the UN. Um, and I'm reading his book now. I'll get that done. He was in Sierra Leone during the bad days with the RUF and some other stuff over there. So, um, and he's actually, he's in Rome now. He lives in Rome. So he's dealing with all that stuff over there. Um, so we'll get into all of it with him and uh, that'll be next week. So George, George, we'd love to have you back sometimes. Just, I mean, just to talk about the human traffic, the anti-human trafficking and stuff like that's fascinating too. Yeah, That's very fascinating stuff. Yeah, I spent the last four years doing that. It's, it's, that was fantastic, fantastic time. Uh, amazing. Well, we'll save that for next time. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to our, our guest, George Hand. Uh, we really appreciate you. Um, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Um, stay healthy. Yeah, thank you. And hold on. I'm going to do this. And... Uh...